podcast where three deep minds meet once again. There's me, Chris O'Connor, and the guest for this episode for the second time, Neil Smedley. Neil is the owner of King Corbett Barbers, which have various different locations over the north of England, and Neil's been finding his own voice, really, in amongst masculinity and mental health uh, for men in specific. We had a really good chat on the first the podcast where Neil said some things that could be perceived to be controversial, but Neil's been been sort of honing his voice and, and, and been invited to all sorts of different seminars and he's also been invited over to, to go and meet Jordan Peterson um, and see him speak. So Neil's voice is growing on this. We speak about emotions. We speak about how your mind obviously logs emotions, how it creates the the concepts for emotions that we feel through sensations in the body and how these sometimes can be misconceived. We also talk deeply around some topics around what it is to actually be a good bloke. What does that mean? What does that mean in today's society? What does it mean when people say it? We got really deep in this podcast. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, just before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to Matt Morris, sponsor of the Mentality Podcast. You're a legend. You're a legend Patreon. People can understand what that is at patreon.com forward slash mentality to understand how much you've helped us, how much you've helped us push the envelope on speaking about mental health, progressing the conversation and actually taking it a step further. And it's in alignment with this podcast really that, you know, that there's, there's been mental health awareness and, and the conversation's progressing. And people are talking more about it, you know, different sort of headline banners of, of it's okay not to be okay are great. I think they're great in, in the way that they open up the conversation, but in alignment with this podcast, we are sort of pushing out the message for what to do. You know, what what's the part after that? What can we do to get better? What can we do to to progress as human beings? And mental health is the basis of a human being's experience. So this is an important conversation for that. Thank you for listening once again because you guys really, really make it possible. And um, I hope you enjoyed this chat. Let us know if you've got any feedback. Let us know if you've got any comments. Cheers, guys. Enjoy it. Peace. Neil. Good to have you on, mate. Good to have you on. Good to uh, be back. For a number two. I don't think we've done many number twos, have we? I was thinking that earlier. Yeah. Uh, Cuffbo and Foxy are the only Cuffbo two, I think, and who Foxy, yeah. return. Although Different. not on their own. So Neil might be the first return. Different sort of vibe, in it. Cuffbo yeah, and yeah. Foxy. <laughs> yeah. um, different sort of vibe. But we, the, from the first chat, this is a bit of background, really, for, for people listening who might not be aware of Neil. Um, I guess we had a, a great chat the first first time. Uh, yeah. Neil is the kingpin behind King Kobe. Um, he's still trying like, to get that out. He's, he's going he's into. Trying to squeeze it in. Yeah, it's mine. I got to put it out there. Um, we had a really great chat, and, and Neil's going on to to more and more things now um, in that space in between from podcasts. Um, he's been involved with the Guardian and, and different platforms, doing work for different uh, TV TV programs. And, and I guess Neil can let you fill fill people in on on what you've been up to and and um, what you've been up to since. Just you, before, seen quickly, um, for people who haven't listened to the previous episode, episode twenty two, because mm. um, you talk about your background and stuff on there, yeah. so we don't yeah, need to go yeah. over that. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, give that one a listen. Um, good background, very honest uh, in that last podcast. 
got a bit of pushback on the last podcast um, from from the reception and understandably we talking, yeah, yeah talking very honestly talking openly um, and, and debating which is good which is, is, is what the podcast is for and, and getting down to the truth which Neil's a big, big advocate for so let us know Neil what, what you've been up to the sort of people that you'll be interviewing and, and going on to see in the future and, and yeah, what it's been, been good to. so I think I did um, I went to see Jordan Peterson last year in Birmingham, um, and kind of at the halftime break, I'd gone outside and was approached by this girl who used to kind of ask you a couple of questions. Um, and she kind of tricked me a little bit because it was just her. So I kind of thought, I thought I'd been chatted up, to be honest. <laughs> and then as soon as I said yes, she kind of clicked her fingers and two guys with, you know, big bright lights and boom mics came around the corner and said that she was from The Guardian. Um, so she asked me a few questions. Um, and then she took my, my number at the end of that and the day after said that she'd shown the take that we did to her editor and they were really keen on doing further stuff. So they came down to the shop um, in Leeds and they interviewed me for about 45 minutes, interviewed some of the guys that worked for me um, and it ended up getting an insane amount of views. And on the back of that, um, I got contacted by some talent scouts, which is an awful name, but that's, that's what they are, <laughs> who said, yeah, this, it's, it sounds awfully egotistical. But they... Basically, said they'd seen it, and they were looking for people to kind of make documentaries and stuff um, around the same sort of topics about you know male mental health and masculinity and suicide and those kind of things. And would I be interested? So at the moment, we're kind of in the early stages of that, of going through that and discussing ideas with these guys. But it's been really exciting, really, really Brilliant. exciting. Well, and, and just touching on some of those topics, what what were that sort of initial interview that you had with with the lady from the Guardian? Can you touch on the topics that you spoke about? And yeah, it was really broad. I mean, it, it was under the the, the umbrella of just kind of is masculinity in crisis was the question mm. Mm. Um, so obviously under that we kind of touched on a lot of topics we did last time really so what is masculinity is it in crisis if it is in crisis what's it in, what's it in crisis from where is, where is it under threat from um, male suicide the reasons for that the answers for that mm. um, how soon we should start addressing those problems in, 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 in young males um, what the answers are so it was a really broad topic but it all comes down to you know they're all variations on a theme and do, do you feel because I watched um, I watched I think there's a 45 minute uh, where it's just you she obviously did some yeah. different people and yeah. there's a 45 minute version where it's just you how did you feel that went and how did you feel that obviously it was just it was you and and, and her like basically in, in Leeds Market wasn't it and you, mm. you're going through some some pretty deep stuff some some serious stuff yeah. how did you feel that was received I know she was really interested in asking about feminine sort of point of views and and, mm -hmm. and how your beliefs, how they work in, in, in sort of sync with, with, with feminine and, and, yeah. and women. Um, how did you feel like that went and, and how do you feel like it received from those guys? It went, so it went well. I mean, obviously you never, it's weird because you get a sense that things have gone good or bad, don't you, at the time, but you never really know until you get to, you get to watch it back or listen to it back when you guys are doing the pods. So I kind of felt it went well. I, I shot myself actually because I'm, I'm a very private person, surprisingly. Um, and I gave a lot away in that. And actually the girl that did the interview, um, Imran from The Guardian, so we've, we've remained friends. Um, and we spoke about how strange it was that I opened up so much and she asked questions that she wouldn't normally ask. So mm. I think the two of us just had a kind of a, a natural chemistry. Yeah. Um, not like a kind of sexual chemistry, but just a, just a there was just something between us that, that made her maybe go into areas that she wouldn't normally delve into and made me feel comfortable enough to open up. So it was good. So it, it went well. And then obviously when it was released um, on YouTube, 
so I've never experienced anything like that before. And reading the comments on YouTube was, was oh, hilarious. Yeah. I mean, some of them were just <laughs> ruthless. Um, some of them were just were comedy gold. Mm. It's like, you know, I'm not going to take masculinity advice from a guy that's got a pink rose tattooed on his neck. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, like, go on, go and on. then the title of the video was "Is Masculinity in Crisis?" And um, you know, one bloke had just put, I'm, "I'm not sure about masculinity, but that bloke's face is in crisis," which was it's funny, the man. Right it, it was, yeah, it's com- comedy gold. And then, but the, um, most of the comments, the overwhelming majority, were really, really positive. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so what I'd said had obviously affected some people. There was some pushback. Most of the pushback was about my views on suicide, which I expected. I understood that was going to happen. Um, you know, I got some, I got some pretty abusive messages in, in my inbox about that, but no, overwhelmingly, I would say 80, 85% of the comments were, were positive. It was positive and it was good. That's good. Um, I, there's, there's a, there's a lot of, of sort of thinking and, and stuff that you see. And obviously, cause we had that conversation, um, knowing that we we're going to have that conversation and the sort of topics we we're going to talk about, yeah. you kind of, you kind of look out for stuff and, and kind of. I guess you look at stuff differently and, and kind of look at how different people are approaching mental health. And, and let's be honest, there's, there's loads of different approaches what people take, mm, I guess. Yes. Um, it's in, it's kind of the in thing at the moment, isn't it? It's probably not, is not the, being like, yeah, cynical, it's a fad without a doubt. It's a fad and it's being treated as if it's a new phenomenon. But within that fad, there is, you know, there's truth to be found. But oh, without it's, a doubt. Um, it's a bit, you know, you see conflicting stuff all the time for different people yeah. and, where that truth lies it's yeah it's sometimes it's crazy to think because it's such an important thing that for every human being but it's like almost everyone's just starting to kind of cotton onto it or talk about it and it's been talked about for years and years like of stoics and you know like literally mm. thousands of years like you, you look at um you know religious scriptures and stuff and, and the way that they talk about navigating the world it's just regenerated and regenerated through different messages, yes. different writings, different people giving the same message really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I guess the fad side of it is, is sort of it being in the news and, and sort of people making it that sort of, I don't know how you describe it as, as, as a trend sort of um, side of things, but um, the messages have been, been around for such a long time. And, and as going back to the point where, after our conversation, you kind of, you kind of look at different things. You look at different, um, books. You might look at different, um, Ted talks, for instance, in which one I'd seen, I'd seen a podcast or listened to a podcast by Invisibilia. It's actually originates from. So this podcast talks about, um, the conception that we have or the idea that we have for how emotions work. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a bit of a different thing to, that I'm still trying to get made around and, and kind of look at, but I think the the conversation of it and investigating it can sort of bring out some lessons for, for guys, um, for, for this time. And I think some of it does link in with, with your message. So, yeah. um, the, the, the sort of the idea behind it is, is like, she's talking about the sort of the common sort of idea of, or theme of how people use emotions or kind of interact with emotions. And that sort of, typical idea would be that things happen to us and then we, we feel those emotions um, and, and it comes from an outside thing uh, but I'll do my best to explain it uh, if you imagine an internal eye compared to having your seeing eye that we'd see with sight right so we talk a little bit about affair um, if you were going to if you were going to start seeing things um, 
So, for instance, if you couldn't see for 20 years and you had an operation mm-hmm. um, to your, your sight and your vision and you started seeing, those, <coughs> th- that sight would actually not mean anything to you because you've not seen the concept of, say, a chair or a table. It'd come across to you as light and, and, and blurred sort of images and, and you wouldn't actually be able to see it. So what, what Lisa Feldman Barrett is saying, actually, on this TED Talk is that over time, they're not actually built into you. They're not pre-wired to feel these sort of abstract emotions. It might be fear, dread or guilt or shame, mm-hmm. but they're actually built up over time. Um, I think we're pre-wired to feel unpleasantness, pleasantness um, and sort of basic things. But the twist that you put on it, kind of, you, you, as you grow, your concepts come in. So, you know, you'll, you'll be told that something's good or joyous or you'll get rewarded for attention and, and, and all this sort of things. If you, so for instance, for me, scoring a try, I'd get loads of attention. That'd be joy for me. Yeah. Do you know, that's, that's an instance for me. And that's something that I'll probably keep going through and, and, and getting through for life. So, um, so it's essentially a nurture of a nurture argument. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess so it none is. of these feelings are inbuilt in us biologically mm. in any sense. They have to be learned and experienced in order for us to, you know, play them back out. Exactly. Yeah. And <clears> I <throat> guess that the, the, the saying is, is, is like, which it comes down to is, is if the brain is predicting the world, so your brain will predict the feelings in, 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 in your, your body, you know, like it might be a physical feeling of anxiety or, or mm. something like that. So for instance, a test, like an exam, you might be going into a test and you might feel anxious. You might have your heart beating, but the emotional intelligence in that would be to reframe that. And to practice reframing that. So for me, for instance, playing a game, I'm going to get that. But I know that it means I'm ready for battle and I'm ready for for um, for the challenge as opposed to someone else or to me in another time that frames it as a negative. So I guess that does give a bit of governance, a bit of control. But then obviously with control, it's, it's a bit more responsibility that I know mm. that you were talking a lot about, Neil, last time and, and Jordan Peterson passed, passed that, that, that message on and... <laughs> the brain can predict um, wrongly, I guess. And I guess if it's, we're responsible, this is a direct quote from it. So I'll try and set it up for us to chat about now. Um, but it's, it's saying that if we're responsible, it's not because we are to blame from learning all these different concepts and how we've been feeling going up, growing up and um, what we've justified or, or sort of made it personal to us. But it means that we can change it as well. Um, and if I think in terms of now and, 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 and someone who's learned about mental health that don't take the first signal for how your brain's predicting what you're feeling, you know? So if, mm. if, it, if it's, if it's, um, I think it might be in the podcast or might be in that, that, that video, she talks about sometimes you wake up and all of a sudden you've hit with this like consciousness of reality and you hit with like the all the thoughts of what you've got in that day. And you link that to that feeling you've got where it's a bit of dread. It's a bit of like mm. anticipation. They think oh, it's going to be an hard day, but it could in reality just be a dehydrated feeling. It could be a, a different feeling waking up where you're tired or you need more sleep. A classic one is that uh, the exact same feeling is pretty much the same as when you're really nervous dreading doing public speaking or when you see someone you love in the first few months of a relationship. It's the same yeah. feeling. Yeah. You view one positively, one negatively. So there's a lot of context behind it as well. Um, and, and I guess that if, if you're learning to try and operate better in the world and, and, and listening to, to Neil or to Jordan Peterson or to someone who's big in meditation, that is, is probably improving that governance to understand yourself better, to be able to change the frame that, that, that you're living it with. Um, 
and that's the what we've got control over. <coughs> I guess I guess that's what you 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 talk about or relates a little bit to what you talk about in terms of people struggling. Yeah. Yeah. So consciously or not, you just described anxiety mm. in a nutshell, mm. um, or the idea that um, what is that cheesy metaphor they, they say for fear? It's cheesy, but it's accurate. Is it uh, false evidence appearing real? Yeah, yeah. So is that so that's what you're saying? We can feel things that aren't necessarily real, although we're feeling them, we're experiencing the emotion. But in in reality, if you like, they're, they're not they're not actually playing out. Yeah, the, I guess there's, there's two games to play. There's there's the emotional side. It's I guess it's not just anxiety, but it's 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 probably going in depth here. But it, it's probably how, how how your body's reacting to the world emotionally. So your brain's got a bit of a, a prediction on that and reading it, and then it's like. The, the outcome of that, like if someone, if someone goes with their gut instinct all of the time, yeah. you're going to be wrong, aren't you? Without a doubt. Um, and I think the mess- there's some messages that people put out there, your gut's always right. Oh, it's one of the worst memes ever. It pisses uh, me how off. How bad is it? How bad is it? Follow your gut. Go with your gut yeah. all the time. Your gut's <laughs> yeah. always right. <laughs> yeah. Fucking not yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> not all. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that. Say add that to any gambler. Do you know what I mean? That is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally, yeah. you'll prove that it's not right. Exactly. I've got a feeling today that we're going to do it. Like, <laughs> yeah. You try putting yeah. a £10 every time you do that. Yeah. See, see where you are by the end of the week. So it's, it, it, I wanted to just give that, con- added that contact for the conversation that we'll have. And I imagine we're getting to all sorts of different things. But, it does, I think, relate to the discussion on responsibility, the discussion on control and, mm. and, and what we can do about it. Because at the end of the day, we want to get to the truth of it. But we want to talk about what people can actually do from that. So I think it's important to recognise, you know, and this, this is something that dawned on me years ago. So we are largely produced, and people will disagree with this, but the evidence backs it up, I believe, anyway. So we are largely produced by nurture not by nurture, in terms of our characters, our personalities, our traits, the way in which we view and interpret the world, the way in which we handle things like anxiety and fear and depression, all those things. So you could look at somebody who, let's say, comes from a single parent family, low economic status, um, in and out of school, doesn't have the same opportunities as a kid that's in a two-parent family with your typical middle-class income, and say, well, you should behave in exactly the same way that the, the kid from the single parent family behave. Um, now, they're not going to do that. Right and wrong is a right and wrong is a spectrum okay so right and wrong is black and white in many senses but it's a spectrum as well so this kid's been taught um how to handle certain situations in a way that we would recognize as being more universally correct the kid perhaps from from the lower economic status background the single parent background hasn't had those lessons okay what i think it's important to do is be able to reverse engineer all of that and go to the lowest common denominator for right and wrong Mm. okay so they don't have the same opportunities or the same background or the same reasoning abilities, but there will be a point somewhere where those two people meet, where they, they, have, they have an agreement of what right and wrong is. Okay, so when you're organizing situations like this, it's important to get to that point, the lowest possible point that you can get to. And then you're starting from the same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like you sort of, you're looking at, uh, at where people actually meet in the middle to actually operate in the world and, and, and sort of, do the best from it, I guess. Um, and, and everyone's got different ideas and everyone's got different, and that's, that's part of the problem with society. Everyone's trying to find the same sort of best idea. And I think, I don't think anyone's ever going to meet in the middle in terms of that, but it, 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 it comes back to that sort of that, that, that personal leadership. So, I mean, the stuff that I do with corporates and, and, and NHS, for example, what, what I've just done recently is personal leadership. And, um, my idea on that is being a, understanding what type of leader you are because mm-hmm. people get put in positions of being a leader 
they don't know what they're actually leading yep. and they don't know how they're going to do it. Mm. So you've got to be clear and consistent in how you do that and know, I guess that comes from knowing yourself, but yep. then knowing how you actually want to do it best. But then this sort of new wave of talking about mental health and a new discussion of it, um, what I think something can improve, which has probably had a dip in generation is people actually being conscious of their own mental health and then doing the right thing. And, and we've had a, we had have a question, um, I'm probably paraphrasing here, um, but I spoke to Dan Rowe actually the other day who does Andy's Man Club facilitations and he's really dead into it. He's going to start his own podcast. Um, and he, he asked about how people change from the story that they tell themselves. And I think that we might be able to get into a lot yeah. of that. Um, because for me, that's that's a bit of personal leadership. If you're in something that you're not, you're not enjoying or it's not working or you're in the same sort of path, that is in my personal leadership. Yeah whether it's mental health or whether it's doing something physical that takes you onto your path that you want to be on. Mm-hmm. Um, so he asked what sort of stuff that that you'd recommend or what you'd do. And and obviously asked that question, you know, you had a quick scan on some of the mentality club questions. Um, and I kind of had to have a think a bit and, and, and thought about my experiences. And for me, you have to have a big phase of learning, but you've also got to plunge yourself into new, ex- new experiences because if, for instance, if someone's going to Andy's Man Club or doing different talk or going to different talking mm. sessions, but they're still in that same story, then you have to look at this sort of stuff. So yeah, for there's instance, no growth if you're just exactly. doing the same things over and over again. Um, so I, I wonder, I pose a question to you, like what, what would you recommend or what's worked in your story or your life that's sort of got you off that um, that track of the same stuff. Was it? Was it? I know there were pivotal moments. We talked a little bit about that in the in the first podcast. But from the outside perspective, what was what would your pointers be or your sort of um, ideas to to get someone to to change their suffering or to change th- what's what's going on for them? Yeah, I think the most important thing. Well, let's rephrase that. The most important thing for me was. So I've always been very self-aware, mm. okay? And I think everybody, it's going back to the example used before, so I think everybody, regardless of where they come from or what they're experiencing, we have the ability to recognise innately when our lives are going to plan or not. That doesn't mean that we're, you know, hitting peak all the time, but we know deep down whether, roughly speaking, we're doing what we should be doing, we're following our internal moral compass, um, and whether things are going roughly in the right direction. So... Do you think that's set up from when you're growing up? Do you think like, w- hmm. where does that internal compass come from? Do you think it's just a knowing or? A- I think, yes, I think, I think there is, and, I mean, ask a biologist this question, but mm. I, I think there is definitely, look, I've, so I've got two children. Okay. Mm. So that's, that's the best starting point I've got for, to answer this question. There are things in them that are simply innate. I don't know where they come from. They weren't paired into them. So you mentioned fear earlier on. Fear is innate. It's innate in all of us. We don't know why it is, but fear is innate. You know, you, you shout at a one-year-old, they will cry and they'll kill up and go, it's innate. They don't know what they're scared of. They have no idea how to identify a threat or what a threat is or how to internalize that, but there is a natural fear instinct. Um, my daughter's two. So if I, if I have to tell my daughter off for, for anything at all, instantly the bottom lip comes down, the head comes down. So that sense of shame, perhaps, mm. you know, shame is maybe a bit of an extreme way to put it, but that sense that I've done something wrong here is there. It's present. It's, it's already there. So regardless of, um, you know, whatever style you're aiming at. So, you know, we're three guys that are relatively fortunate. Yeah. We, you know, mm. we live in the West. We, we, we're pursuing paths that, you know, we want to pursue. Mm. We've got lives that are relatively meaningful. Um, 
So for us, recognizing when our life's going right or wrong, it's relatively straightforward. Now, there are people that don't have that. I worked with a lot of disadvantaged kids. I worked with kids that were living on the streets, kids that were involved in drug and alcohol addiction. These are kids, um, 14, 15, 16, that in terms of worldly possessions had, had nothing. All of them were well aware their life wasn't going where it needed to be. Now, that doesn't mean that they had the flip side of that coin. They, they didn't know what their life should look like, but they know it shouldn't look like that. Mm. That's the starting point. So you don't need to know how you're going to get out of the debt crisis you're in, for instance, or how you're going to deal with, with overcoming the divorce you're going through or the redundancy that, that's just been inflicted upon you. But if you know that your life shouldn't look the way it does, that's your starting point. Do you think that's a combination of, well, we spoke about it before, like gut, like, is it gut instinct? Is it sort of a, a, note, a deeper knowing or is it a, you know, like a sort of mental framework that you just, you kind of understand? Is it a combination of mind and body or? I think it's both. Yeah. I think it's yeah. both. I think that there is some sort of existential angst in all of us, you know, mm. that tells us, and I think it's innate that tells us this isn't exactly where I'm meant to be. This isn't the job I'm meant to be with. This isn't the partner I'm meant to be with. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done A, B, and C. And these things are things that navigate us towards our correct course. Now, what we've become exceptionally good at, especially in the West, and especially in the last 20 years since I've been social media, is hiding from those feelings. Mm. And we've become experts at mm. hiding from that or justifying um, the that existential angst we feel by saying, okay, I'm in a job that I can't stand, but it's paying me X, Y, and Z, and I can't leave. Mm. And we justify it. And then what we tend to do is we stall it up until we get to 55, 60 and we explode in midlife crisis. But I think that to answer your question more directly is to explain where it comes from. I can't, I don't have that, that, that skill set. but there is something within all of us that is innate that tells us instinctively whether or not our life is going the way it should go. Now that doesn't mean we need to know all of the answers. All we need to know is this currently isn't right. And then that's a starting point. And from that point, then you can then explore where you should be going and you come up with a plan. It's mm -hmm. like anything else. You write a plan for your business. You write a plan for, you know, for, 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 the, for the board and a corporation and you need to come up with some sort of plan for your own life. Otherwise your life will just live itself out and you'll play no role in it. Do but I do think that's definitely innate in all of us from my experience. A, a period of feeling into that or experimenting with that? Like some people listening, they might think I'm really unhappy and they obviously, the job might be making them happy, for instance, or, mm. you know, how they're living their life. But they're, like you say, their sort of picture of, of what will make them happy could be quite abstract or yeah. obscure. So I, I imagine there is a period where there's feeling into it or there's sort of that sort of experimenting or them new experiences. And, and that's what I was saying to Dan, like that you have to, you have to sort of be uncomfortable or you've got to sort of make yourself going to different different sort of worlds and different things that you've never really expected to well, sort of contrast to what, what's going on for you at, the, at the, that, that second or that moment. Yeah, well, there's, 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 there's two things that everybody unquestionably, in my opinion, needs. And one is to have the ability to be brutally, brutally honest with yourself. Yeah. Most people don't have that ability. And the ones that do don't want to embrace it because you're going to discover ugly or awful things about yourself. You just are. Doesn't matter how great you think you are, you're not. You're more monstrous than you allow yourself to believe. If you can have that truth with yourself and explore whatever that process throws up, then the second thing you need to do is everybody, everybody you meet, including us three sat here, we could reel off three or four things right now. Right now, without even putting too much thought into it. Start there. Start with those things you can do. The, the one thing that we do as human beings, well, we do many things, but one, you know, one, of the, one of the things that is a, 
a barrier to personal growth is that we absolutely ignore the, the, the magnitude of the small things in our life and how utterly huge they are to our long-term success. 80% of our lives is made up of the small things. 80% of our life is the small stuff. It's the relationship you have with your girlfriend. It's the person you speak to at work every day or the colleagues, um, the relationship you have with your children, how, how, how well set up your house is, how, how well does your house function. Um, all of these things make up 80% of our life. You get that right, you've got 80% of your life that is pristine. 20% of our life, that's kind of reserved for, the, for the, 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 big, the high magnitude things that we all dream about. But if you haven't got that 80% figured out, you ain't ever going to reach the, the pinnacle of where you want to be. And I know that. You know, I've spent years ignoring the little stuff and wondering why the big stuff didn't make out. Mm. But we're kind of, not hardwired, that's the wrong phrase, but social media and, and, and all this sort of stuff puts us in a position where we want to miss out steps one to two. We want to go straight to step three, four, and five. And if there's one message you know, that you could give, especially young people, is that, look, get these little things right. It matters. It, re it matters how well organized your bag is. Keeping a diary matters. These tiny little things that seem like they're preachy. You know, you, you look at the, 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 the top 10 traits of the most successful people in the world across all dimensions, mm. and I guarantee five, six, seven, eight, nine traits will all be shared amongst all of them. Mm. And it will come down to the little parts of their lives that absolutely manage to perfection. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in that. Thinking about it, so I was always big on habits, right? Because for ages, I used to be, when I was stuck in a rut for quite my early 20s, I remember every now and then that like late at night, I'd find some inspirational YouTube video and I'd be like, all right, brilliant. Tomorrow I'm yeah. going to sort my life out. And I'd have maybe a momentary like 12 hour period where, but then it would always fade. Mm. Yeah. But it was when I started <clears throat> trying to um, like change my environment in my home. Um, and I still do these things now, like... <clears throat> not having social media on my phone, I have an app called Focus Me, so I can't even access them through the internet bit on my phone. Um, if I want to go on Twitter or Facebook, I don't have Instagram, but if I want to go on them, I go on my laptop. So I structured my world. So it's almost like you can't trust yourself in the moment always. Um, yeah, that's true. So I remember a friend said that his brother was going through alcohol problems. He's like, he couldn't trust himself. So having the big thing that helped was having no alcohol in the house. If he mm. had alcohol in the house, he knew when he was down, he'd drink it. But having no alcohol in the house meant he wouldn't drink it when he was down. He did something else instead. Mm. Um, so changing my own environment to kind of not allow me to lapse in those ways it just gives you a platform to then do steps three yeah. four five like you said but the thing um, with the, 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 the great thing about that concept is it applies universally yeah, yeah it doesn't matter where your starting point is it doesn't matter black white gay straight rich poor we've all got that that rock bottom place where we know there's three or four things we can easily fix the power of fixing those three or four things however trivial they may be and then watching how your life progresses from there is huge you know, and I think part of the problem with this advice is it almost seems too simple. Mm. It's too simple, this advice. You know, but you listen to anyone you admire, they will tell you exactly the same thing. If you don't have that foundation, whatever it may be, it's like when you Jordan Peterson's book, one of his rules is clean your room, you know, yeah. and it, obviously it's, it's more nuanced and deeper than that. But the point is, unless you can govern your own immediate space, then do not expect to be able to govern anything else around you. And you think about that and you go, yes, yeah, 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 that's true. Mm. Of course. Of course, you're trying to tackle deep areas of your life. You're trying to go out into the society, into the world, you know, and make waves and whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And you can't even pay the bills on time. You can't even keep your house tidy. It's like, no, there's, there's a progression here, you know? And if you get those small things right, so much flows from that that you can't even comprehend. Yeah, the couple of things that jumped out at me is I made a few notes. So we might jump about in the conversation <coughs> a little bit. But... On the emotions thing, because we, we did chat a little bit off there, that, um, and we'll, we'll put out the, the pod and the YouTube video of the TED Talk, 
but Stevie sent it to me last night I think he sent it to you yesterday yeah. as well so I haven't had a chance to look at the counter arguments no me neither yeah but um because you know you do see these TED talks and sometimes they're really slick they're well done they'll cite yeah. studies and you look up and the study is you know 12 of their mates <laughs> and you know it, there's no other no, no one else has replicated the findings yet so yeah. sometimes it's um, but yeah because I remember you saying the, the innate feelings of emotions where she was saying that there's societies around the world where every single emotion you can think of there's one society which doesn't have it mm. so where uh, we might feel fear there's a society which has the same feeling but might frame it differently mm. uh, which I don't think is is dissimilar to what you're saying you, you're saying that the, the yeah. innate feeling your child has is they'll get the arousal of something's happening yes yeah yeah which we label as fear now but, but it's how they're taught to deal with that it's yeah, how, yeah. I mean fear is an emotion but how it manifests itself there's 50 ways you can manifest fear you can manifest fear stoically which means you don't manifest it mm. you can manifest fear by, by running away you can manifest fear by, by becoming too progressive. It's the same emotion, but it manifests itself in different ways. And even le- beyond that, it's the same physical feeling before yes. you even call it anything. Yes. There is something there. And then it's what label you put on top of that and then how you go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, Doving was jumped out. So I remember there's a book by Stephen Pinker called The Blank Slate. And I haven't actually read it. I read one chapter in it, but I read, it, I read his other book, Enlightenment Now. But he puts far more weight on nature rather than nurture. I don't think he says that nurture doesn't play an impact, but he says people put too much emphasis on it now. I haven't actually read it, so I can't really give his argument. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to throw that out. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. I've, um, I know, I know his argument. I've not read his book, um, but I would, I would even suggest. I mean, I've done a lot of research on this, and I'm not a scientist, but the, um, yeah, the academic community wouldn't really agree with that either. It's interesting to get, but I think. Especially now because I'm a dad and I can, I can see nurture in action. And because we've all been parented, so we can see nurture in action. You know, I look at, you know, I mean, and there are key differences. So nurture definitely plays a part. I mean, me and my brother are entirely different individuals. Yet we had the same household, the same parents, mm. the same experiences. Um, so nurture is relevant. But I've worked with too many broken people to know that nurture isn't 90% of who we end up becoming. I think he does. So again, I haven't read his book, but I've, I've spoken to people who have read his book and I've seen some of his stuff and read his other book. He would, he does say that nurture is hugely important and making, you, you can really fuck someone up with nurture. Yes. Oh um, yeah. Self evidently. Yeah. So he said, like you said, but actually when parents are stressing over every, like loads of little details, of their kids life, he said, actually, as long as you don't fuck them up massively, the genes will play more of a, a part than yes. you will. Um, so yeah, there probably is quite a bit of overlap yeah. with, Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. You mentioned that, and and I think it's important. And um, I think there's a scale of of people being self aware and how self aware they are. And, and something in the last podcast um, that you mentioned, I found really interesting. I didn't get into it then, um, but you mentioned that your old man had, had um, played like Bob Dylan songs yeah. and, and, and different songs like that, and he'd, he'd have you sit down or maybe analyze them or talk about yeah, the lyrics right. and stuff. Mm, and yeah. Talking about nurture, do you think that's a sort of uh, an anecdote or a reason for why you you become so oh, self-aware without, a doubt, or, without yeah. a doubt we grew up in a very self-aware household really um so my dad was ironically my dad couldn't read or write until he was sort of 29 30 my mum taught him that so mm. academically he wasn't a smart man but in terms of emotional awareness but he came from an incredibly incredibly abusive and broken background mm. and my dad's life was just hell it was it was just hell until he met my mum um you know and that had a big impact now he parented which, which wasn't all good but you know, you're huge. So, you know, he would, um, we were, and I'm not exaggerating, we were seven, eight, nine, ten, and we would have to recite Henry V speeches. And, you know, I'd, I'd watch Roots by the time I was 10. You know, I knew the yeah. whole Malcolm X story and I could recount Malcolm X's, uh, Martin Luther King's last speech and 
could, you right. know, I could decipher Bob Dylan and these are, these are deep things, but yeah. <clears throat> it meant that, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah. By the time we were sort of 12, 13, 14, we had an emotional intelligence. I think, you know, most six year olds will struggle to get, mm. which isn't all good. You know, we were probably too self-aware, but I'm grateful for it. But yeah, that, that played a huge role, a huge, huge role. And in our house, nothing was off limits, you know, and there was always this sense that, you know, we were aiming for kind of greatness somehow. You know, so we had all these pictures of all these great men on the walls and my dad was always playing speeches by great men, you know, and that kind of built up in me and Leo the sense of, well, that's the goal then. Mm. The goal is to be like these, you know, like these great men. Mm. Was there ever a point where, because I know people who are, you know, emotionally intelligent, but it's almost become... They overanalyze every single aspect of everything. I do. Um, yeah. And is it something you constantly have to constantly curb a little bit where you might be... Yeah. And sometimes you might find stuff which isn't there sometimes if... Well, it's, just, it's a strange paradox because life is exceptionally complicated. Um, it's full of a thousand shades of grey and yet it's also black and white. So... There are layers and nuances everywhere. In every conversation, there's nuances. You know, in every perspective, there's nuances. Um, That's every, a controversial opinion now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything requires deep thought. The problem with this generation particularly is that there is no thought beyond the surface. So, yeah, I, I overthink things too much. But, well, by the world standards, I overthink things too much. By my standards, I don't think I do. But it, it does become quite isolating because I'm aware that, you know, other people don't necessarily do that. Does that blend into like what you say one of the fallbacks of being so self-aware? Like, you know, what 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 sort of uh, negatives would you say? Would you say it kind of stifles you and, and from action or? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Was it Martin Luther King that said um, analysis to paralysis? Yeah, which is where you just you think so much and so deeply, which is good. It's a great starting point, but that you you spend so much time thinking, researching, planning, plotting that you never actually fucking execute. Yeah, and yeah. that was my life until I was thirty five. That that was literally my life. That's what I would do. And talk about giving yourself a place to hide. I would hide in the fact that I'm thinking really deeply about this shit. Mm. I'm getting my plan, and I've been wasted ten years just thinking about stuff. That manifests itself in so many ways. Like I'm quite similar in that respect, and even to the point where you ask my girlfriend if we go somewhere. I'll have pre-looked up the menu online. Even there, I'm looking up the menu. Yeah, you are. I'm thinking of different combinations. Like, yeah. and then when they come, I still don't really know. It's just, yeah. <laughs> Paradox of choice. That. Exactly. You, you well, that would, I'd be the same with like, um, before like, the iPhones became a thing, you know, you, you had a choice of what phone you got. Mm. I would research every single yeah. phone. I would watch <laughs> YouTube review after YouTube What's review. What's the capacity of this one? What's this one got this one doesn't? Like, <laughs> what do I need in my life? <laughs> I was watching your headphones last week and I must have watched 50 YouTube reviews on it and just, <laughs> yeah, I was going, just yeah. buy the headphones. <laughs> don't like them, take them back. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no, you're right. I get I'm the same. Yeah. <laughs> the holiday to Croatia. Yeah. I had the history of Croatia like nailed down everything, like the wind yeah. temperature at different times of the year. Like <laughs> yeah. and my girlfriend yeah. goes, like, just take a punt, let's just go. Yeah. yeah. Like, but then paradoxically, I'll have thousands of pounds in parking tickets because I forget to pay them. Yeah. So yeah. You know I mean it's a character trait that doesn't exhibit itself yeah, across yeah. the board. Your yeah. brain probably puts that as a level of importance, like so. That's much your lower. That's or, your value system, then, isn't it? Really, probably plays into what you're talking about that that sort of internal, internal radar or, or internal direction, which is 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 based on value system. Do you think value systems comes from a bit of both nature and nurture? Or yeah, it's an interesting question. I think nature definitely plays a huge part in it, um, but regardless of that. The sense of right and wrong does seem to be in it, you know, and I guess the, the evidence for that, as weak as it is, you go and take a hundred people from the street right now and do a survey with them, list, I don't know, the, the, the top the top 10 crimes in the UK, 
and ask them to say whether they're right or wrong, you would get a, a pretty universal consensus on what was right and wrong. And probably even if you expanded that globally, right, took a hundred random people, hundred cultures, you'd get a pretty universal. There's always some crazy cases yeah, where of course. some society believes that killing is uh, brilliant, you know. But generally, yeah. you'd get ninety percent plus. You'd, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the difference in terms of internal compasses comes in the nuances. It comes in, in between the grey lines. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a result, a result of both. But I think most people have an inbuilt sense of what is right and what is wrong. Mm. And, and, and so like, there's that period in your life, you said up to 35, where you'd put stuff off and you'd struggle with different things. And, um, you know, you'd, you'd kind of... As you spoke in the last podcast, you sort of outed yourself, didn't you? And yeah. just realised that you needed to make a change. Did that come along with, did you get help or like help with that therapy or, or speak to different people, psychologists, or is that sort no. of self-learned? I went, well, it's weird. See, I always knew that. It took me to, I mean, shame on me because it took me, it took me, you know, so long to implement what I already knew. But from being 15 and 16, I knew, I knew for well I wasn't living the way that I should live. I, I knew it all along. So we were brought up very religiously and we were brought up as Mormons. And it's that, so I didn't live my faith correctly. And then when I went to sixth form, I didn't give sixth form what I should have given it. You know, I boxed for 20 years and I was a very good boxer, you know, and I, I could have been, could have made a career like that possibly. Mm. Didn't give it everything I should have given it. Um, you know, and I got married young, didn't give that everything I should give. There was a pattern that just emerged of me just not being engaged in whatever it is I was doing. So, I always, always knew, and I think most people do, which will be controversial. I always knew that I should have been doing more. I just simply turned that part of my brain down mm. and I filled it with other things. Um, but I did, but I did go to therapy. <coughs> I was in therapy. <coughs> Sorry. I was in um, psych therapy for two years. What, probably? It's probably 10 years ago now. Mm. So I did that for two years, um, which, was, which was good. And what did that look like? Was that just sort of giving you more ideas for... I guess what you're talking about, more understanding and, and sort of what yeah, to do from that. Ironically, a, a, a really good therapist shouldn't, not shouldn't. You ever listen to a guy, like you've both listened to Jordan Peterson, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So you can listen to, say Jordan Peterson an example, you listen to somebody speak and what he's saying resonates with you. Almost like you've heard it before. And you're like, I knew that. Mm. I've just never heard it articulated that way. And that's essentially what therapy does. Therapy you've got all the answers already. It's just that you haven't articulated them a certain way. So a therapist's job is to bring that out of you. Um, and that's what it did for me. He didn't tell me anything I didn't already know, but he, he, he put it through a different framework. Was it, it CBT or talking or was it like... No, um, it, was just, it was just straight up talking. Okay, yeah, yeah. CBT, I mean, CBT is good, but it, it's... CBT is too short, I think, to make any kind of yeah, real yeah. difference. It's great. CBT is something that if you can teach yourself, which, which you can, yeah, it's a, really a great personal it. tool. But in terms of deep therapy, it's, it's too short, it's too intense. Yeah, yeah. on 10 mm -hmm. sessions. But yeah, I did that for two years and that was, it was really helpful. Um, but what it was more helpful for me personally was it showed me that what I already knew was correct. And that essentially was, grow the fuck up, Neil. Stop being a fucking coward. Stop pretending to be something that you're not. Um, start living with some sort of integrity. And what? that was the, that was the brutal truth that I needed to face. Mm. And what were your steps, like talking about what we talked about earlier, what were your steps one and two, like the simple things you started to do that then made an impact in step three, four, five? Stop you know, lying. Stop lying. Stop lying. Mm. That was it. So much of what I'd built up in my life was a lie. I don't mean lying as in, you know, I would, I would tell you it was three o'clock and it was four o'clock. You know, I'm mm. talking just to deeply, to, just to stop lying, to start living my life aligned with the principles that I believed. And I hadn't done that. 
I had this 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 set of, of principles here and I had the, the way in which I live my life here and those two things weren't aligned. And they weren't aligned for a long time. And I genuinely believe, and this is controversial, and the only reason it's controversial because it seems too simple. I genuinely, genuinely believe from my own experiences and from the experiences that I've witnessed in other people that that is the root cause, particularly in men, of most men's depression is that they have these two things that do not align. And mm. for the love of God, they just struggle to make them align. Mm. This is what I believe. This is who I want to be, but this is who I actually am. And they can't make those two things meet. And when you are in that place, as I was for a long time, that's a brutally dark place to be. It's a brutally dark place to be. You're not the hero of your own story. And who doesn't want to be the hero of their own story? So for me, it was as simple as, okay, from now on, I am not going to, not only am I not going to tell a lie, I'm not going to live a lie. So if I hear something I don't agree with, I'm going to speak on it. Mm. If something comes my way that requires my attention, I'm going to act on it. If something comes my way that I shouldn't act on that I would have done in the past, I'm not going to act on it. I'm going to start living more truthfully aligned to who I need to be in the smallest of ways. And then that began to build and build and build until you get to a point where you go, okay, I can respect myself a little bit more now. So it's almost like there's a third thing as well. There was, uh, you know, who you think you should be, who you are, and then who you should be. So the who you were, the who you should be is pulling out the, the good things you saw that you were. Yes. You know, when you're down, sometimes there's parts of you which you realise you don't want anymore. You need to shed them. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yeah. So there's like, there's almost a third kind yeah. of aspect. There's, there's part of you that needs to be gone. And, yeah, and, yeah. and killing that is just as hard as, as growing the new part of you. Because I've got this theory, and it's, I mean, it's just my theory, but it's, um, I don't believe anybody changes ever unless you become disgusted at who you are. Like I really believe that. I, but in order for real, wholesale, genuine change from the ground up, you have to become fucking repulsed at who you've become and the situations that you are. And if you're not, and I wasn't for a long time, and I only changed when I became repulsed with myself, unless you become that repulsed, the emphasis that you need for such a massive change will never, ever come. It's like that's the propulsion that you need to get yourself going. You know, it's like if you're overweight and you're overweight for, for 30 years, well, you would you are comfortable being overweight. That doesn't mean that you didn't, you didn't say, I wish I could lose weight. I will lose weight. I want to lose weight at some point, but you were never repulsed enough to act. Yeah. But we don't like using words like become disgusted, become repulsed with who you are. These are far too you know, clinical words for us to use because we're so intent on helping and empathy and compassion and giving people these victim statuses that we won't use words like repulsion and disgust. And, you know, Maybe it's just me, but I've witnessed this for, you know, I'm almost 40. The people that really change are the people that become repulsed and disgusted, not only with who they are, but even with the situations in which they live. How do you think Martin Luther King achieved what he achieved? He was disgusted at the, at the, at the political climate of that time. That's the mm. only way he could change it. If, it was just, if his attitude was so-so, he wouldn't have done it. You've got to become repulsed. You've got to become disgusted. And I think if you don't do that, you won't ever change to a meaningful degree. Now we can all change microly, yeah? And that's what a lot of people do, including me, I did this for a long time, I still do it now, is that we'll take small steps forward and we'll justify the fact we've taken small steps, sorry, we'll take small steps forward. Um, we should have taken bigger steps, but the fact we've taken small steps, we'll use that as evidence of change. Mm. And that's why I can't stand this. It doesn't matter how slowly you go as long as you're going forward. So no, that's bullshit. Bullshit. That, that, that's not true. What's true is, did you take 10 steps today? I took 10 steps today. Could you have taken 15? I could have taken 15. Then you should have taken 15. 
That's what you should have done. That's how change occurs. That's the real change. We lie to people when we tell them these kind of things. Like it doesn't matter how slowly you go. It does matter how slowly you go. It does matter. You know, you need to be living within within your means, obviously. And we don't go flat out all the time. But you've got to be operating in sort of the top 80, 80 to 90% of what you're capable of if you want to get the life that you claim that you want. And if you're not prepared to do that, that's equally fine. We all get to choose. You know, there's no judgment here. But if you don't want to do that and you're not prepared to do that, then shut the fuck up all the life that you want that you don't have. Would you, um, so thinking about say 15 steps, 10 steps analogy, do you think someone who's maybe at the lowest point they could get to, right? Deepest sets of depression for them, cleaning their room and sorting their house out might be the 15 steps in a, you know what I mean? In a day Absolutely. that they maximally could achieve. Yes. Um, and there, because there are points in my life I look back on where I remember thinking, um, you know, and you're glad you go through them after you get through them. But those points where getting out of bed, getting in the shower and getting to work on time was just huge. It felt insurmountable. Oh, and and, and I, I did it. But yeah, I couldn't have done much more then. Now, obviously, it's I could do loads more than that. But um, so yeah, contextualizing what those 10 or 15 steps might be for people in, the, in that moment is... Yeah. Um, but, but again, I think you have a kind of innate sense of there are times when you do something and you know you could have done more. You know mm. what I mean? Maybe it was clean your room and go for a walk. You know, I'm just picking an eight no, out But let's air, be but... honest, you're right. There are times, we, but let's be honest, that's most times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's most times. Yeah, we're not all perfect all the time. No, you I, can't be I run 100%. a business, Steve's a, a pro athlete. How many times have you genuinely, genuinely, genuinely given fucking everything? Mm. I can maybe count on one hand. Because it, to go to that place is, 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 is brutal. Mm. It, it's most times that we don't give enough. And again, you've got to conceptualize it. So, you know, some, some days, and I'm, I've, I've been there, I've been to the darkest of places. So I understand if all it is within your power to do that day is just to open the curtains and get dressed, open the curtains and get dressed. No one's saying you should have done more. If that's all you can do, do that. Yeah. But don't do nothing. That, that's the only message. Don't do nothing. Because when you do nothing, you've proven to yourself that you can do nothing. I think there's a scale in there. There's a scale of, of, I guess, it's not a one size for all, is it? It's not one fits all. I think you, you've got your own, like you say, you've got your own compass, you've got your own scale. Um, and and I know that that when I play, I know that I do not want to fucking give less than, than I fully can. Um, yeah, yeah how, how would you answer that question then? How many times do you reckon you've Man, given I, absolutely I, I, I everything? I, I do it a lot and, and it probably gets me in positions where I don't want to be. I probably end up that's leaving the pitch. Exactly. <laughs> probably why I leave the pitch too early. Um, and that's probably because I'm aware of that scale and, and training wise and stuff that like, you know that you can probably go a little bit further and, and a bit harder and um, push it in. But then you've also, as I've learning or trying to learn and, and keep learning that, maybe just back off that tiny bit now because you've already done yeah, 10 yeah. sprints. Yeah. You get and such a good measuring in. stick, don't you? Yeah. Like, yeah. I get such every day, every day I get such a, you, you have to wake up, I'll, I'll get a cold shower at half six in the morning, um, which is getting harder now the temperature's going. And you've got to, when pre-season comes, it's going to be dark. You're going to be going into like training ground and you're only just going to be able to see people's faces when they're rocking up. And you've got, eight o'clock to get stuff ready, nine a.m. you're out on the field and it's partly still dark, there's no light and you've got to think, right, this is gonna be a tough yeah. session this. And where I guess we're more prone to it and training is is something that we've done all our life. So we'll do that. We'll go through the phases. Once you're in it, I would say add that once you're in the swing of it, 
it's a lot easier to, to deal with and cope with rather than the idea because we suffer more in, in imagination than reality, um, which is... Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that that's a big thing. You, you get, you've got to get in the swing of it. And, and, and a lot of the time, for me as well, um, not just in a rugby context, but you also have to fake it before you make it. And I sometimes don't like that because it has all the different connotations, but you have to get in that swing of, of, of what works for you. Yeah, you do. And that's a real thing. And that comes into knowing what works for you, yeah. value system and, and, and not lying to yourself. And there's there's loads of things that from, from what you said there, Neil kind of um, wants me to ask more questions, but I do have that gauge, I guess. And sometimes I'd probably push it too far and we'll put my body on the line and all this sort of stuff. And well, I probably still ask, ask more of myself. Yeah. Um, and there's going to be people like there's going to be people different who, who think, oh, I might just avoid this but this is the thing so what you're saying is is absolutely correct so look there's a principle here and the principle is universally applicable how that principle manifests itself is different so look some people can can be Steve Jobs and can build a a billion pound corporation some people are going to struggle to pass GCSE maths okay the Final destination of your skill set is unimportant to the principle. It doesn't affect the principle. The principle is do what is in your power to do as often as you can do it and you will reach the pinnacle of your existence. It's a very simple principle that if the pinnacle of your existence is to be a street sweeper, then be the best street sweeper that you can be. Mm. And if that is a pinnacle of what you're capable of, then one of the incredible achievement. It's a pinnacle of what you're capable of. If you're capable of building a billion pound corporation, um, but, but you you know, you end up I don't know, being on the door for 20 years, then you've wasted your life. Mm-hmm. So the principle applies universally. People get hung up on the destination. Well, he can't do it. Well, no, no, just do yeah. what you can do as often as you can do it. And your life will start to take on some sort of semblance, you know, of what it should look like. It's not about comparison to each other. Is no, it? there's it's no comparison. Your own Did you give all you could today? Mm. Yes. Did you give all you could today? Yes. The outcomes of that will look very different, yeah. but the principle remains the same. Yeah. And you, you can't argue way out of that. People want to. You know, you can't argue out of that. The principle is universally applicable. Mm. Do you think it's possible for someone to be like, and the answer is probably no. I mean, in my opinion, it'd be no, but to be 100% every day, no. I've given everything. So, but is there a, a, a stick you aim at? I mean, we talked about at the end of the last pod, you, the percentage of where you want to be. That's what I've got to get better at. Yeah. Like, every day I think, fuck, it's got, like if I'm training or whatever, or especially for games, I'm like, fuck, it's got to be, this has got to be the best. This has got to be, this has got to be good, this. That's I don't want to leave that field yeah, knowing, knowing those feelings that, that I left some, some out there. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Which is, pff, but that's know. an abundance mindset. And that's an abundance mindset. That, and again, it's a principle. And the outcomes of the principle vary every time. Right, so for instance, so I, I power lift, yeah? Mm. I had a session at the gym last night that was just terrible. It was abysmal. I was lifting about 75% of a max, okay? Way, way down. But I left that gym just brutalized. I was exhausted. The week before that, I was hitting 90% of my max. Yeah. Both times I gave everything. But the mm. results of me giving everything were significantly less this week. Mm. Now, what our mind just said, oh, I didn't give everything because two weeks ago, I got 90%. It doesn't always work like that. These are the results of giving your all, not linear. Yeah, now, yeah. the idea of going give 100% every time, we all know intellectually that it's not possible to achieve 100% yeah, yeah. of your best. But if you aim for 100%, if you hit 90, you see what I mean? Mm. Then you've hit 90 Rather than going, if I can get to 70%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're constantly aiming for the best, you're going to get somewhere close to it at least. Um, but the results aren't linear. 100% effort doesn't always you know, yield 100% results. No. And there's so many external factors at play, right? Like I just think boxing is such a good 
um, place to see this kind of borne out. But if you think of boxers, you always get a boxer who's had a big fight, right? Like think of Josh Warrington's next fight. You know, he's had a couple of really big fights. And then you get that fight after, which isn't quite as big. It's really hard for them to hit the same highs yeah. because They're externally they haven't got that, that antagonist or that, that threat. Not there. Um, so got to think of that, and it's That's almost more at play for them. Yeah, mentally, it's probably the harder challenge for a, for a boxer in that position than it is physically. Of course, um, it's hard to get away from that. It's like yeah. you, you're playing a team that's about to be relegated, or you're playing in a cup final. Yeah, which one are you more yeah, yeah. for psychologically? Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's just the way it works, and it is. And and and, and you for for those people like a double gambling but if you have a team that have caused an upset one week against yeah. a team a big team they like, should never have beaten yeah they shouldn't have beaten you look for the result the week after because yeah because yeah, they're usually always the opposite they? Energies, they lose against someone they shouldn't have yeah, yeah their energy's down they've they've had their cup final the week before and next yeah. week they might have to go away to I don't know some some team that that the that's at the bottom of the league. Yeah. Um, so that that's a big thing to. They might to have think consumed about. a few beverages in the week as well. Yeah, probably. yeah, well, exactly. Especially if it's after a final. Yeah, or something. yeah. There's a, yeah, there's a deep um, psychology to that. There mm, definitely is. It's, um, it's yeah. A, I think the, the principle is universal, but the, yeah. the result, of course, the results will differ. But I guess the premise of what I'm saying is it doesn't matter where you are or who you are or where you're starting from. It doesn't matter whether you can, you know, you can barely read or write or whether you can defraud Nietzsche. None of that is relevant. What's relevant is, you know, full well, in most cases, what you are capable of giving at any given time. That, if you um, give that, you'll make progress. So that comes at a phase and, and, and a sort of, and actually aligning your behaviours with, with what you want to do or how mm. you feel, I guess. Um, and it just makes me think back to, this is a podcast. I think this was the second podcast I ever did. It was Craig White and um, we've done some work with Craig White um, with a retreat, mentality retreat. He's actually over in Japan now for head of strength performance for Uruguay. Yeah, I've been following um, him since you yeah. put him on Instagram. So you, you, obviously I think it'd be good for you to have, I think it'd be good for us all to have a conversation actually. Mm. Um, but Craig actually talks in depth on that, that second podcast, podcast about... Um, sort of an identity crisis and the gold that, that came from that. So we talk about that sort of going to your truth and acting from your truth and, and what you know is right, I guess. For you, Neil, was there a phase, like Craig's mentioned, that there was a phase where he felt alienation. He thought he felt, Chris mentioned that shedding of stuff that he needed to leave behind for him to actually live to, to what his, his true you know, sort of where it was. Um, very deep this, but was there any sort of alienation of feeling or sort of the unknown or leaving things that didn't serve you anymore? Do you know, did that go through a phase and obviously you did some some therapy and stuff like that? But yeah, it didn't, it didn't go through. <clears throat> it's weird for me. I, 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 I would argue it's the same for most people if they would admit it. But like I said previously, I always knew that I should change. So there wasn't any, aha, oh my God, I've been doing things wrong. Mm, like I always okay. knew I wasn't doing things right. Yeah. Um, which again, it is shame on me. I would, I would rather have been walking down the wrong path fearfully, you know, trying to aim something and be wrong than to have done what I did, which is essentially just, just waste 15 years. Yeah. So no, what it was with me is, well, the biggest cat is my mum died. My mum died when I was 35. So what, four or five years ago. And, it was the first time that I've ever really genuinely been aware of my own mortality. Mm. And I was a father at that point. And it was going, if I was to die now, like my mum just has, what do the people closest to me have to say about me? How much of my potential have I left on the table? And the reality was 90% of my potential was unfulfilled. It was left on the table. All of the things that I talked about doing in my twenties 
90% of them were left unfulfilled and unaccomplished. And I became repulsed. Like I said previously, I became repulsed. I became disgusted and I became terrified. And the, the, with the, the death of my mother, you know, sort of looming over us, that gave me the yardstick to go, this will happen to you at some point. You know, I don't remember if you mentioned it on the, last pod, <clears throat> on the last podcast or not, but one of the real pivotal moments for me was I gave a, a, a talk at my mother's funeral um, mm, the week after she died. Yeah. Did I mention it? Yeah. It, was, it might have been on the Make It Masterminds. I remember you talking about it anyway. So I might yeah, have heard so it I, I pod, gave. I, I gave a talk um, and I, I spoke for like 25 minutes about my mum and kind of just got lost in saying these wonderful things about my mum. Mm. And, um, you know, and I got people coming up after saying, oh, you know, you gave a wonderful talk as they do. And I just started thinking about it more and more and more because, you know, when you kind of lose yourself in a moment. So I don't know where those words came from. I have no idea. Yeah, it, there was not, yeah. there wasn't planned. There was no bit of paper for me. I just, I just spoke free for 25 minutes without pausing for breath. And I had this real deep kind of, you know, hairs on the back of your neck moment where I think, None of what I said during that talk with Miss Funeral, none of it came from me. Every word that I spoke came from her life. In other words, I had no choice but to say what I said about my mum because she lived so well that there was no nuances in her existence. She, she was completely self-actualized in who she was. And it's like, fuck, fuck. I need to make sure that whenever my expiration date is, if my son talked about me at my funeral, he doesn't have to choose the words that he says. And that was a, that was one of my big revealing moments. Yeah, it's a big. It sounds like a big mm. moment, mate. And um, mm. I guess the, what what you, you spoke about there, they want a sort of a, a phase or a moment where um, it clicked. You're always kind of aware of it. Um, and 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 you spoke a bit before about people uh, that might be overweight, they might be comfortable with it or something. Do you think there's always that sort of slight uncomfortable feeling that people have? For you, it, it, it kind of. I guess it gradually, gradually, gradually built and then you've sort of had that crescendo where you spoke at your mum's funeral. Do you think that is a sort of a, a measurement stick of people take action when they're actually, to, to use your word, repulsed or disgusted with what's going on and that's when they actually take action? Yeah, I, so I, th I think that the, in most cases, and obviously there's, you know, it's never universally applicable, but I think in most cases that nagging feeling that something isn't right is always there. And it can be there in the most micro of circumstances. Let me give you an example. So when I was working for the mental health team for CAMS, we worked with a family there and they were a lovely family. Um, and two of their children were under the mental health team. Okay. So they had lots of problems. Um, <clears throat> mum and dad didn't work. Mum and dad were both extremely overweight. They had gambling problems. They hadn't worked for a long, long time. Um, genuinely good people. They loved their children, but they, they were just, they weren't very good at life. It's that simple. They weren't very good at living. And I became fascinated with this concept of what is a good man? Like, what is it? You know, because people sort of define that. And anyway, in attempting to define what a good man was, I remember getting into a conversation with one of my coworkers where I had sort of nonchalantly said, I'm going to see X family this afternoon and see the kids. And he'd said, um, or she said rather, yeah, he's, he's a good man, the dad. And for whatever reason, it was just a throwaway statement. It really got me thinking. I was thinking, is he a good man? He hasn't worked for 15 years. But man, this man is a regular man. Yeah, not the brightest guy in the world, but there's no mental health problems there. He's, he's, you know, cognitively he functions. He hasn't worked for 15 years. His wife hasn't worked for 15 years. He's at least 10 stone overweight. He smokes 40 cigarettes a day. He drinks heavily. He's aware, at the very least that his life would be significantly improved if he didn't do those things. He's aware that the life of his children would be significantly improved if he didn't do those things. Now, the fact that he can't 
comprehend you know Carl Jung or Jordan Peterson or the fact that he hasn't got the capacity to do an open university course or to get the same level as perhaps you or I could irrelevant if I sat down with him which I did and say you know you shouldn't smoke as much yeah yeah I know you know you shouldn't drink as much yeah I know you know that if you went and got a job it would be a great example for your children yeah yeah I know I was thinking but you're not a good man you're not a good man by that definition so to, to my point is even a guy like that, yeah, and in spite of all the problems that he had, and he did, there was, there was social economic problems there, there was real problems there, but regardless of all of his problems, he knew full well there were things in his life he shouldn't be doing. Do you know, have you followed up with or the family since? Or yeah, do you know no, fam- yeah, yeah, it's exactly the same okay. situation 10 years later. The kid I work with now is probably 25, 26, but it's the same situation. But my point is, when people say, well, you shouldn't judge them so harshly. They don't know the things you do. He wasn't raised the way you was raised. I say, no, you're absolutely right. I have a cognitive function and I have family relationships that, that, are, that are better than his. And I'm grateful for that. But he knows there's at least two or three things that he knows full well he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I think it's a deceptive, not that you guys have made it, but people do. It's a deceptive argument to say, but he hasn't had the same opportunities as you. All of, all of that's irrelevant. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's all irrelevant. He still knows full well there's three or four things he shouldn't do. And then that opened up this fascinating question for me about well, what is a good man? And when do you get to claim to be it? And what, what would your version be of that? Like, have you landed on something that, that, you, that you think is a good man? And what, what, what does that mean that they're not doing, but also what they are doing? Yeah, see, right, this is something that I play around with a lot recently. I've become obsessed with this concept. I, sp- I speak to everybody about it because I, I haven't figured out a way yet to articulate it fully. Um, it's not easy to articulate, is it? Yeah, it's, you know, on the spot sometimes, like you've introduced a concept there, you know, it's hard to sometimes just formulate your own yeah. opinions. So I kind of think you need to reflect on for a while because I get what you're saying. Is I know people, um, similar pe- the people in similar positions and I would have said, oh, they're, they're a good person. And I think what I mean by that is they kind of have an innate kindness level that's probably a little bit higher than someone else's so that they always have a kind of a nice way about them. But then I guess it's almost semantic. What do you mean by good? Um, well, what I think you mean, I don't mean to be patronised in any way because I did reverse it myself, is what we really mean when we say that's a good person. What we really mean is that they're not a bad person. What we really mean is that they don't break the law. What we really mean is they don't shout or steal. Then there's nothing about them that's noticeably, uncharacteristically bad, and therefore it's good. And what I realized is that, ah, shit, no, this is quite deep. No, you're not good by default, and you're not good just because you don't do bad things. Good is not a state that exists because of the absence of bad. Good is something that exists by itself, because of itself, and it's self-replicating. I.e., you have to continuously do good to be good. You are not good just because you don't do bad things. That, that's, really, that's an interesting point. I did philosophy of language, right? And in a nutshell, it's kind of like language evolved to describe real-world physical things, like there's a rock, there's a tree. And then when you get into things like this, like concepts which you can't just point something at, it's where language is quite limited. So it's almost like... That, that, that state between good and bad, we don't have a word for. So because it's not bad, we call it good or maybe vice versa. The same analogy applies. Yeah. Uh, it, but it's cases where like language can actually be a bit imprisoning in some respects um, in how you formulate your thoughts on these things. Well, not only that, the language that we use, again, gives us a place to hide. So, when, I mean, look, people don't ever like facing the truth about themselves. And when you attempt to do that, they will inevitably become offended with, with what you're saying. And... Look, if you ask, if you say to anybody, like, are you, you're a policeman, are you a good policeman? Yeah, I'm not a bad one. 
Are you a good dad? I'm not a bad dad. Are you a good husband? Yeah, I'm not a bad husband. And it's like, think of how fucking pathetic a statement that is. Like, truly. This is where I say I overthink things. Think about what an unbelievably weak statement that is. That you can be asked if you are good at something you do, whether it's been a father, a husband, a rugby player, you know, an employee, and the most standard answer you hear is, yes, I'm not bad. You're not bad. And what an incredibly weak statement. And what we really mean is, you are defining who you are by the absence of an observable negative. How did we become so weak? And these are things we go, no, 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 no. you know what I mean. So like, no, 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 the language we use is important. It's hugely important, it defines who we are. To be good, you must actively be good. You know, when you, you know, if you guys got girlfriends or not, but you don't tell your girlfriend you love her once, you tell her every day. You don't not cheat on her once, you don't cheat on her every day. You continue to build that thing because it's a status and it needs to be constantly maintained, you know? Mm. And for me, it's, to, to come back to the, that, the, the example I just used, no, he wasn't a good man. And it's something that I'm fascinated by. And I apply this to myself. I don't know at what point you get to call yourself a good man if you are actively, knowingly, willingly, consciously doing things that you know harm yourself and your family. And that was, that's a staggering realization because I, I have to apply it to myself and say, I think I'm an exceptional dad. And I go, but there's, I know there's things in my life that I could change that would inexorably improve the life of my son and my daughter. Maybe not now, maybe that would manifest itself in 10 years time, but there are things in my life that I don't do or that I put off that I know for where they would benefit from. And you, what kind of monster does that? Genuinely, what kind of monster knowingly puts off things that they know for well would benefit their children or their husband or their wife or their spouse? But I do, and we all do. And then in the very next breath we'll say, but I love my children. But I love my wife. And it's like, for me, and I, I don't know what the answer is, we're getting into something really deep here, but I, it's, a, it's a, a kind of a weird dark amount of space that I've become fascinated with. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think monster's a bit of a strong word there? If, you, if you're accepting that 100% is too far, right? That yeah. no one could do 100% all yeah. the time. You have to allow some slack for, if people are getting 80, 90, 95, um, you know, if, if people are getting close to 100, then then say what the mean would be. Yes, right. So then, okay. They're not a monster because they don't hit 100%, if you know No, what I mean. so what I'm talking about, no. <clears throat> there are people that are in the arena of life, if you like, yeah? That are on the track, that are running the race, that are trying their best. Now, they could be getting lapped by other people, they could be lapping other people, but they're on the fucking track at least. They're in the arena, they're playing the game. And there's people that are in the stands, and those people are watching the people running around the track, and they're criticising those people and they're doing nothing. So the... the the example that I used of the, the, the guy that I knew whose daughter I was working with, he didn't do anything. He hadn't gone from 40 a day to 30 a day to 20 a day to 10 a day. To, so I'm better. He hadn't gone from two bottles of wine a night to one bottle of wine a night. He hadn't gone from not working for 15 years to doing a part-time job. Zero. He knew full well he should have done something. He wasn't even in the arena. That's monstrous. Unless you can give me a better way of describing it. Yeah, okay, yeah. But, <clears throat> but it's... No, but what I'm saying is, you, what, to come back to your point, so you, you're right. I'm not saying that unless you are 100% on it, you're some kind of monster. You're not. Clearly you're not. So one definition of a good man, okay, and we could argue about this all day, but one definition certainly is that you are in the arena. You're playing the game. You are actively trying to be better tomorrow than you were today. You will go four steps back sometimes and only three steps forward, but you're in the arena. You could be getting this shit kicked out of you year after year, but you're in the fucking arena. You're playing the game. 
That's for me is a definition of a good man. A good man is not perfection, <clears throat> but you've got to be in the arena. You've yeah. got to be playing the game. Is you there, what I mean? Yeah. I mean, this, this is a simple observation from what you said about, um, so I think you were speak. I don't know if you're speaking hypothetically or about you personally, but there will be an array of things that you think for your children will make their lives better. Like, and there's, there's, there'll be an array of things that'll make your own personal life better, your business life better. But there's also a, a simple observation that, fuck, there's only so much time you can actually do. So like, it would be strong to say you are a monster for not doing those things. Mm. Unless you know that the, the, the sort of those imminent sort of straightaway things that you have to do, then, you know, and it's going to make a massive difference to their life. And, you know, you can, you can shade it a bit stronger, but I think, you know, that, that for me, the, the arena sort of analogy is good because f from my point of view in the arena, because you've been honest, you, 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 you're debating and, and you're talking and you're actively trying to make your life better and yeah. make other people's lives better. Um, so I think, I think, I think that sort of intention is, is what goes towards making a good man. But Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans and 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 all sorts that John happens Lennon? along the way. That's John Lennon. That's a good line, yeah. though. <laughs> but no, but to be clear, to be really clear, I am not saying that you are a monster. I am a monster. Anybody is a monster because they are not consistently hitting the heights. That's not human. It's not possible. But if you, yeah, I'm talking about, and I include, look, I, I yeah, label yeah. myself a monster for a long time. And I genuinely do. Like these things keep me awake at night. If there are things in your life that you know, you know full well you are not doing and a result of you not doing it, especially if you're part of a family unit, is negatively affecting your family. That's monstrous. I'm not saying you are a monster, but that act alone is monstrous. And this yeah, is what I'm talking yeah. about in terms of getting into deep truth. Really deep truth. Who the fuck, including me, wants to admit that part of my character is monstrous? That needs to go. Because all that is is a sign of extreme selfishness. You know, you hear all the time, I would die for my children. You go, they don't need live for them. Live for them. I'd die for my wife. You, know, you die for your wife? You, you, you've spoken shit to her for the last three years. Live for her. Like for me, this is really deep. This is a, this is a, a part of the process of becoming repulsed with yourself. But we hide away, again, we're talking about language, Monster sounds too dramatic. It sounds too extreme to label ourselves because monsters are Hitler. Monsters, you know, is is um, is Stalin and and Chairman Mao. Monsters are rapists. Monsters are killers. Monsters aren't me. It's not me and you. It's not people we know. And you know, it was Dostoevsky who, who who said, "No, the the line of good and evil runs between the heart of every man." It, wouldn't it be lovely if we could go, that's an evil man, put him there and lock him away. And the good guys, us, because we're good guys, we'll stay here. And it's no, the monstrous things and the evil that resides in us, it manifests itself in the things that we do not do that we know we should. And when we, it's a deep principle, but if we can come to realise that and realise that that is monstrous, then we can turn ourselves. And we, then we become monsters that have harnessed the monstrous parts of us and we execute that for good. But if, you, if there are things in your life that you do not do and you know full well that harms your family or, you know, the, the substructure of your own reality, that's monstrous. I don't know, unless you guys have got a better way of describing it. <clears throat> yeah, no, I guess the distinction is, yeah, if something is monstrous, doesn't make you a monster. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah, but if they build up, you know, if they build upon themselves, then I guess by default you become a monster. Yeah, but, the act, is but the, act, the act is monstrous. Yeah, yeah. Like I've told lies. Well, I'm not a liar now, yeah, but, I, yeah. but I've told lies. I've done bad things, you know? So the act of doing that is monstrous. 
if you could, if you, but once you've made that realization, if you continue on that path, then you are a monster. Yeah, because I mean, f- for years I, w- I wouldn't, but I would, I would describe myself as a good man now, and I'd be happy to defend it if people yeah. wanted to attack it. And it's because I've I've had to change a lot of things that I didn't like about myself. And obviously, I'm still work in progress. Everyone kind of is. Um, but even on, on lying was one of the first things the Sam Harris said we talked about in the last pod. Mm. And I remember uh, last week I was in Croatia with my girlfriend and we were getting a bus because our ferry was cancelled from an island. And this guy said, he came up to us and was like, um, oh, you're getting the bus, we're getting a taxi uh, to, um, to Zover Point. And immediately I just said, oh no, we've already got a ticket to the bus because basically I didn't want to share a taxi with him. Mm. And as I walked off, I immediately realised we haven't brought a ticket to the bus, so I just lied there. Yeah. And I asked my girlfriend, it killed because I, I have a it's real a little... strong, um, and anyway, we went back and got a taxi with them because it was a bit cheap. It wasn't cheap in the end, but the bus wasn't there. So <laughs> I've not got the tickets. But you weren't lying at least. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I went back to him. It's actually, mate, we didn't buy the tickets didn't, and I, I kind of rectified it. But I have like a real high yardstick now, but I kind of worry that maybe I've just create a rod to beat myself if I slip a little bit. Um, mm, because exactly. that played on my mind quite a lot. I was like, I misrepresented what mm. the reality was. It's the first time I remember doing it for quite a while. Difficult one is often in the arts. If you go and see something you don't think is very good and someone you know is in it, that is yeah, the most... Yeah, it was sound. Yeah, it was that good. is a really tough situation. But what and you just said then is interesting. So you've given, you've given yourself, um, like, a, like I said, a rod to beat yourself with because you've got this hierarchy of what's important and you've put truth at the top of that hierarchy. That's exactly what it should be. Mm. That's exactly what a moral structure should be. It's a stick mm. to beat yourself with. But you almost apologise for that to them. I was saying that. Do you see what I mean? It's like, I, maybe it's I, too much. I thought much. about whether it's, because uh, you know, I, I had really bad OCD of the head injury and sometimes you had all these kind of guilt about things that weren't real. So I'm kind of wary if I'm being over guilty. But in that case, I didn't think I was. It's like, because I have that high standard of, I yeah. don't want to ever lie. You sinned against your own yeah. ideal. But what I mean is, is it's interesting, the language, maybe you didn't mean it, but the language no, is interesting. I, I, I guess the way because, I said it was almost as if I was apologising. Yes, yeah, because that's yeah. what people do. Maybe, or maybe this is too much. Maybe, maybe this, this moral structure I've got is too much. It's like, well, no, it's, it's probably too little, if anything. You know, if only we could also, maybe perhaps it's too much. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, they're the things that we should, because they're the things that, that make you who you are. They're the things that give you integrity. They're the things that mean you can look at yourself and say, I'm a good man. It's because of that yardstick, you know? So that, that should never be something we apologise for. Yeah, it's a strong essay, in it? That Sam Harris one online. And every way you sort of look at it or, or take a glance at it, kind of comes up with proof for why in the long run um, it is better to have that and I think I've got mates who refuse to read it yeah yeah. <laughs> well Ryan's catastrophic yeah. yeah and I, I do it if I'm stuff doing it all the time people will come in with CVs you know and I've got no jobs but I'll take yeah, the CV yeah. off them mm. and then afterwards I'm like you I'll go why the fuck did I just do that mm. like it, it's insignificant in the grand scheme of the universe yeah yeah but it's it provided a little chink in my armour about how I perceive myself See what I mean? And how you perceive yourself is, is perhaps one of the most important things in the world is how you perceive yourself. Mm. So any, any, any chink in that is potentially cast off it. So that's like, that, that, that statement there just made me think it's like there's, and we can go on to like spiritual teachers or to, to self-proclaimed gurus and stuff like that. Um, but that is a very important thing to sort of, to have your sort of ideal sort of moral structure in place. Um, for what you go forward with because I'm just talking about a contrast here that just come to my mind there's Jim Carrey you know when Jim Carrey came out and talking about basically saying who is I and what is ego and stuff and um, he puts a very different 
you know, he's, he's talking almost virgin and nihilistic sort of point of view that we're just atoms and, and all this sort of stuff put together. Um, and there's people like Eckhart Tolle who talks about ego and how it doesn't really matter and it's just causes suffering all the time but there's also a good side of it or there's also a good side of that idealistic point of or perception self-perception um which i guess you you spoke about there and you you've zoned in very much about how we spoke about that i say many times and zoned in on it and and that's how how you live i guess that's sort of building up that self-awareness that's building up that sort of self-perception where do you stand on on sort of it's taking a bit of a turn here and then there's these questions that are still going in my mind about what we spoke about before, but where do you stand on those sort of, it'd be, I don't know whether you'd call them spiritual teachers, whether you'd call them um, gurus or whether you'd, is there, is there space for that in the world? Is there space for that? Or is that another way of escape? Like there's, there's a lot of debates that you could have you know, questions on, on this. But for, for me, for the scene of Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris blends in there sort of, they they present archetypes that have gone gone through the years and through the years and 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 sort of blending into what is a good man. Um, they're simple steps for me, um, but I also like a lot about the meditation, uh, understanding your ego, the thoughts that don't really matter that you sort of don't need to to even consider because it's just a thought. It's a thought of fifty thousand that you have in a day. So it's I don't know whether it's more more Jordan Peterson or there's a bit more that you can take from meditation side of things and, and these gurus or people that talk about that um, what's your thinking on those type of people and um, what's your sort of um, relevance towards it for, for, for how you live your life um, yeah it's not for me mm. it's not for me and that isn't it's clear for a lot of people and it clears a use I mean the term meditate even the so when you meditate, it's become such a prescriptive thing now. I mean, my meditation is, you know, if I'm driving in the car and it's raining and I'm listening to, to Bob Dylan and that's, I'm, I'm in that moment, I'm in a meditative state. Mm. You know, that's where I am. I'm for anything that reveals to people the truth about themselves. And I think a lot of the new age stuff is, it comes under the guise of wanting to reveal you to you. But I think it, I think it protects people from their true nature. That's, I think there's a bit of that. That's yeah. what I think. I mean, one of the Eckhart Tolle things, Eckhart Tolle said a lot of good things, you know, but one of the things he'd said years ago when I read his book that kind of put me off his whole philosophy was that there is no, there's no failure, only feedback. And I think these are, these are dangerous philosophies to teach people that there's no mm -hmm. such thing as failure, to teach people that we sh they should love themselves unconditionally, to teach people that they are deserving of love and respect. And he said, well, why? Why are you deserving of love and respect? Where is the default position that says you deserve these things? Where is the element that you have to earn them, that it has to be deserved, that you have to work for it? Where is the element that life is brutal? You know, where is the, the idea that, you know, and I see this a lot, and I know I've close friends with people that believe in these kind of philosophies. You know, I'm just going to ask the universe. I don't know what the fuck that means. And it almost, this is an extreme kind of way of putting it, but it, it feels kind of offensive to me. The only people that ask the universe for things, as far as I can see, are you know, middle-class white girls. And, you know, and that's, that's a very crass way of putting it. But it's people that genuinely believe you need to ask the universe for things and it will be given to you and the law of attraction. It's like, well, I, I don't get why we aren't just going to Syria then and telling these kids just to ask the universe for the end to the tragedies that they're facing. Yeah, there's law of it's, attraction it's, one. I can't believe that's still... Not only is it still going, it's fucking huge. It's yeah, like, yeah. I, 
it's, and don't get me wrong, people have found solace in this, okay? Now, there is the argument that if, if someone finds solace in something, it's a good thing. And you go, okay, it's a powerful argument. I get where you're coming from. And the other side is, but if it's not true, it's keeping them from a truth, and all truth is powerful. And I think there's a lot of it that allows people to hide. And you, know, you can flip through Instagram any given day of the week, you will see meme after meme of this kind of holistic, nonsensical nonsense that you don't really believe to be true. You don't really believe what they're saying, but it feels nice. It's a nice place to hide. You know, and I think a lot of it as well is you, it gives you a kind of um, moral currency, if you like, as well, which you can operate in the world that gives you that title of being, I'm a good person because I do it A, B, and C. So it's not for me. Um, I prefer the more brutal truths. But that isn't to say that I can't see there's good in it. There's good in it. There's good in it. But anything that can be counteracted by something that is, that is tangibly and objectively true, I don't think anybody should be encouraged to follow. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking, and I didn't know if I'd even mentioned this on podcast, but um, I think sometimes it can be a sidestep for, for what you actually have to deal with and, and sort out and sort your present moment out rather than just focusing on, on meditating and sort of ignoring the feeling that you get. Um, but I watched that TED talk and then they were like, you know, YouTube puts like a video up next. Uh, and it was an Eckhart Tolle one. I seen it ages and ages ago and there's this bloke stood there and you can see in his face he's suffering. And he's just talking to Eckhart Tolle and he's just saying, I've read all your books and I like I like how you, you, you put it and stuff. And, um, you know, there's this fable that you mentioned, uh, but there's, you know, I sometimes find that when I'm trying to be in the present moment, I've got an overactive mind that'll tell me some of your teachings and it'll keep telling me and, 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 and you can tell, you can see it exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and I can see, I can't, this I can't tell who's like, there's like a cloud is like thinking of, of how to reason it and to say it. And because you can't turn your mind off. It's impossible. Exactly. I think neuroscience has proven that beyond doubt now. Yeah. And it's, I think a lot of these things are well-intentioned. The other thing that they do, which is negative, is they, they make guys like Eckhart Tolle and some of these other guys, they, they make them de facto profits. Yeah. yeah. If, if you're following. doing stadium tours, selling stuff out, I'm, my kind of cynicism yeah. has, like, goes up massively. This, that I'm, I'm wary of everyone's it's like Tony Robbins. integrity. Mm. I, like... I've seen some of his stuff on YouTube. Like, so the basic message of what that guy says, like fundamentally, if you don't dip beneath the surface, you, you, you can't disagree with it. It's so vanilla. Mm. It's like saying I'm against poverty. Or I support, like, there's just such mundane statements that no one can disagree with it. You know, but then there's, there's, there's very news saying, you know, Tony Robbins saves a marriage in seven minutes. It's like, get the fuck out of here. Mm. Who believes yeah, this stuff? No, no one follows up on those people a year later, Never. two weeks later. That seemed like they've had some transformation. That's my point about habits. Like, these things don't happen overnight. No. What it meant was, is that he was really, really, really good in that moment yeah, of saying yeah. some motivational things that resonated. And I just think it's... Um, Not because of him, I'm just saying that the format that they put him on Oh, it's uh, bullshit. If you look, it's it's kind of like it's manufactured. It's not going to make lasting change. I know a guy that went to one of his things. It's a, a work in the giant within. He paid £5,000 for his three-day course. Jeez, I didn't know that. And yeah, so at the start of every morning, they've got these um, wow. kind of like house DJs there. It's five grand for three days. They have these house DJs there and he's getting everybody up and they're clapping and almost getting everyone into these kind of translucent yeah, states. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they leave that feeling like they're on cloud nine and they walk straight out into King's Cross Station on a rainy Monday morning and real life it's and that's why I'm a big but I understand it because it's comfortable mm. you can be anything you want well no you can't you can achieve anything you want no you can't these are falsehoods but they make us feel good 
they make us feel good and they keep us consuming they keep us believing they keep us stop asking questions and that's why I'm a massive massive believer in give me truth give me brutal truth give me agonizingly disgusting truth about who I am and then let me rebuild from there so at least by the time I reach the end of my life I can build something that's real you know and I think it's a real dangerous place to be when essentially we are just filling people with these nice fluffy memes about who you are and what you can be and what you deserve. You know, tell people what they should do. Tell people what they aren't. Tell people the work that needs to be put into themselves. You know, that's for me, that's, that's the answer to everything. But it's not popular, you know, it's, it's not popular. That's why, you know, Stephen, no, Stephen, um, Jordan Peterson, does one and a half thousand seat arenas, you know, once or twice a year and Stephen Robbins is worth hundred million because mm. people want comfort in lies. They want comfort in lies and that's what these things are. It's a good point to note that we're launching our mentality three-day conference the 7,000 ahead. <laughs> yeah. uh, be whatever you want to be. If it's in you, I'll find it. Yeah. 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 But imagine what a dangerous philosophy it is to teach people there's no such thing as failure. Mm. There's no failure, only feedback. And if you learn a lesson from it, it's not a failure. It's like, what, a, what an incredibly hideous thing to mm. teach people you can learn from failure do you know yeah. what I mean you can, you can failure fail. is essential yeah yeah, then yeah you walk on going no I didn't fail I just found mm. a thousand ways to not yeah. do it it's like yeah I get it I, I get what you say but no you, sometimes mm. you need to fucking fail yeah. you need to feel the hurt and the bereft and the loss of that failure and that's how you learn yeah, of course that, it is you talk about the unpleasantries and, and that repulsion or whatever but that will trigger you or will push you that, that's the fuel that'll push you like you're not just gonna some of this stuff it makes it feel all very um, linguistic and it seems like when you see it it's like oh, that's a good idea that, that'll, that'll work but you actually need to go through the, the pain and the feeling of it to actually do make that change or to, to go and win next time no and, doubt so um, I like David you listen to David Goggins yeah 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 I, I, a lot of, I'm in a fitness group we're just called Full Goggins which is, we haven't, if you haven't gone Full, goggins, full goggins you haven't gone hard enough so we all do like part runs every week and but go. that's the thing and it's like you listen to that guy and you can't debate a single thing he says no. and he says much of the same things I was 300 pounds and I was fucking disgusted with myself I was repulsed you know but these holistic guys who say no 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 you've got to love yourself be gentle with yourself and I just don't believe it works I think those things however one intention they keep you imprisoned and Excuse me. And it's it's cheesy and it's cliched, but the truth sets people free. There is nothing more redemptive on the face of the earth than the truth. But the reality is less than five percent of us, you know, and I've picked that out of thin air, but I think it's it's roughly right, will ever genuinely accept the truth of who we are, because it's too painful. It's too painful for us to look at ourselves genuinely, objectively, tear ourselves apart and go, Oh my god, I'm not who I thought I was. And it sounds like a brutal message, but the the upside of that is when you do that, you're free. You can literally redesign yourself and go off into the world and become a good man, you know, or you can hide. Yeah. Goggins is a good example because sometimes I do think though that it, does he allow any room for any of the enjoyment and nice things in life or is he always just killing himself? Has he gone a bit too far one way? No, he, he spoke about that. Actually. He spoke about, I haven't I mean, done his book, but my mates have done his book, but they say he goes into more detail. No, he but. said he felt sorry for his wife because he knew that he was that, he was just one of those mega fucking intense guys that everything, and he's like, look, I need to enjoy life and stuff, but he's just, he's not, that's not his mindset. Okay, cool. So he actually oh, talks about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, he acknowledges yeah. it and he understands the importance of it, but he also says, it's also just not who I am. I'm just, I'm just not that guy anyway. But I recognize for other people. And he says, I'm not telling you to be me, you know? But again, what he was saying is the mindset I have is universal. How it manifests itself from individual to individual will differ. But the mindset is true. And nobody can argue with that. Yeah. That mindset gets results. It's true. It's objectively, provably true. 
but we, how many of us, you know, adopt that mindset? Well, it'd, be, it'd be funny if there was like a Joe Rogan when he's 65 and he's like, Joe, I fucked up, man. <laughs> I can't walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't do anything. I'm in chronic pain. Like. Episode 4,000. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. No, no, I, I do um, get a lot from cocking there, too. There, there is a lot in what he says and, and obviously I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a nervous healer. I've been through stuff what he has, but I've been through stuff on a pitch or feelings on a pitch, whether it's training or, you know, probably in, in games where it, it is, te- that is a test of character and that's yeah. banded around so much. It tests you like, and when you've been to that place and you, you know, you can, you can walk away from the change rooms or walk away from the ground. That's, that's when you know you have, you've done it and you can, yeah. you know, look yourself in the mirror if you like. So there's a lot in what he says and, and, and he's, he has that message to push people to, mm. to find their, their limit or to find their sort of yeah. their truth and, and, and to operate from that. So you think what David Goggins is, you know, 2019, Marcus Aurelius, 2000 years ago, who said exactly the same thing. Mm. You know, is it your pity on those men that never face challenges for they never get to prove who they are? You know, these, these, these themes are universal. Yeah. It only seems to be the last generation, generation and a half that has attempted to redefine what these things mean. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is, these have been universal maxims of, of life, but specifically of masculinity for millennia, yeah. you know, but the last 20 or 30 years, we wanted to redefine it, you know, and make it softer and gentler. And it's like, well, look what I was doing. You know, there's a depression epidemic. I don't think it's a coincidence that these things align with each other. Not at all. There's a depression epidemic because we're moving away from these architectural maxims that have always defined how to correctly live your life. And they've been passed down, as you say. They have been passed down for years and years and years. Yeah, I know meditation gets a bit of a bad rap now, rightfully so. It's the like mindfulness, people call it. It's kind of like being packaged and branded as... Um, but in its kind of essence, the, the stuff in Sam Harris's Waking Up is the best book I've read on it. Um, and on the retreats I've done, it's there's so much overlap with stoicism and meditation and, and the Buddhist teachings is, you know, yeah. in its purest sense is that the world is how you make it by how you, you know, how you view it. Yeah. It's kind of, um, which overlaps with both of them. If two people view the same thing, but they view, they, one takes it positively, one takes it negatively. One's going to feel all right. One's going to go around ruminating and thinking, Oh, what could I have done differently? Or, and it's funny. Cause like, obviously it does get a bad rap, the meditation, the mindfulness sort of stuff. And I, I practice mindfulness. It might be in bouts of 20, 30 minutes, or it might be 10 minutes here and there, or I'll focus on doing it in the gym just to be present. You, yeah. you do it when you listen to music yeah. and people, I think more naturally do it than, than other people. But that sort of focus on, on getting down the truth or, or, or feeling into yourself that I imagine will have come in, in something that people perceive as, um, you know, soft, what am I going to go sit down and meditate for five hours yeah. or, but you, 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 I guess you, you did a, a what, what I imagine for me, if I'd have done a 10 day retreat would have been a, that would have been one of the hardest things ever to do, to sit down and to feel, feel what it is to be you f- without any distractions for 10 days straight. It was the truth. You get to the truth of who you are by just sitting down with yourself and all the distractions go away and all the stuff you've kind of, um, I think I talked about on another pod, but I kind of look at it from a, from a scientific perspective. I don't believe things exist outside the physical world, right? I think everything, I'm not a dualist when it comes to mind and body. Um, I think it's all neural le- electronic impulses. And so I think y- you probably have some sort of storage somewhere of your negative experiences. It's, your body kind of evolutionary probably stores things that it thinks give you an anxious response because they're important. Cause back in the day that might've been a threat. So I kind of think, you store them somewhere and 
when you actually stop doing stuff, all these old, it's really weird. Kind of like every trauma I'd had, it kind of bubbled up and you kind of go through it again. And the teaching was that you just go through it and go back to the breath. So you're teaching your body to not react to it and then it will kind of be gone. And a lot of people with trauma and things like that have found it really useful. So it's like working through it. Yeah, yeah, by actually not, re- by just teaching your body to not store it. Because every time you get really anxious with a thought, I'm sure we've all had it, you know, when you're a certain person who, who nicked your girlfriend or a certain town um, where something bad happened, whenever it's mentioned, you might get that anxious response. It's because you've stored that and your body has a physical response to that thought. Um, so for me, kind of like from a rational perspective, it was just all those stored things kind of bubbled up and I just, they don't really come back as much now. That's what it does for me, meditation. It oh, kind yeah. of gets you to the truth of, and you, you do kind of get to the truth that you were talking about. You kind of realize who you are, failings and all. You know what I mean? Like I had idealized versions of what a man should be and I don't match, you know, uh, 10 things on those lists that I would have put, you know, like Clint Eastwood and Westwinds, uh, in Westerns. Uh, the 10 things on there or, or sports stars, you know, I probably hit maybe five of them. But when I was younger, I was like, I had to be all 10 of them, but I'm not, you know what I mean? I have my own things I want to do. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how masculinity is defined. So I'm, I'm down for anything. Well, no, that's not strictly true. Most things that people find beneficial. Like a 10 day retreat, that's clearly helped you. Yeah, absolutely. clearly. Like, and that's not, you know, that's not questionable. Probably wouldn't help me. But it, if it's helped you, it's fine. Go ahead and do it. Go yeah. ahead and do it. Yeah, I would down. say you, you would get benefit from it. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, it's beneficial doing stuff you think is going to be really hard anyway. That was one of the reasons I did I wasn't sure. No, I, yeah, thought, yo, that's, I didn't that's think true. I could do it. Doing so thought, things just for that, that purpose. Yeah. Mm. It pushes you. I think, yeah, I've, I have maybe, I've maybe got a bit of a natural cynicism as well. That no, I think it's actually good presents though, right? me from doing stuff that I know. Have you, have you read do. Waking Up Sam Harris's? No. I'll, I'll lend that to you because that, that's a re- that was the, that was the only time I took it seriously after I read that. I was like, oh, actually there's a neuroscientist talking about it from a more a non-woo-woo perspective. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but yeah, I'll be interested to see what you think of that. Yeah. yeah. It does break it down and it breaks it down into a very secular sort of viewpoint, the benefits of meditation and, I guess that's a wave of, of, of new info that we've had. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, I don't think guys in Leeds would be talking about meditation and how it can improve your life. But it's common. You have to, you assess it, don't you? But the, the flip benefits. side is like Neil was saying, there's guys talking about meditation who probably aren't talking about the same thing that, yeah. that you know, the real stuff is. You know, yeah. It's kind of like they're just using it as, I have got this app and I meditate as well mm. and I put it on Instagram, hashtag yeah, mindful. It's a moral currency. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's become a moral cool currency, the same with a, you know. Performative, isn't it? Like yeah. it's like, yeah. You get yourself a dot work neck tattoo and a flat cap and you go and meditate and you've, you know, mm. you've given yourself this kind of identity. But it's interesting because you're right, 30 years ago, they wouldn't be having these conversations, but 30 years ago, there wouldn't have been a lot of the, the nonsense that we have now as well. I mean, it's so paradoxical. It, it, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating crossroads. And perhaps sometimes we redefine things too much and we think on things too much. So one of the things I always like to do is to reduce everything down to just two choices. Obviously, it's more nuanced than that, but if you can do that as a starting point, you know, it's even if you're talking about suicide, well, look, you live or you die, or you, you win or you lose, you succeed or you fail. You know, so what, what is my option here? And obviously it's nuanced, but if you can just reduce it down to those two things, at least then that gets you on the, on the starting mm-hmm. point. And, you know, th- there's such a flood of information. We've talked about different things, whether it's different different shades of mental health or meditation or whatever. But um, for you, um, I, guess, I guess I guess a big task for the millennial male now is to to weave the way through that information for the best sort of information that... Mm, there's so that much out there now and conflicting the, and... 
Yeah. A lot of it not really based on stuff. Exactly. That I think it holds weight, but yeah. Yeah. This show much. attempting to make you feel good in that moment that has no substance for mm. who you're going to be in five years or yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Just makes you feel good now. Um, so I guess the question is, for, we spoke about Jordan Peterson, we spoke a little bit about Max Aurelius and stuff. What would be the things that you direct people to, you know, if they're listening and think, fuck, you know, I want to, I want to actually have a look into this, see what, yeah, like what top three, four, top five pods or yeah. videos or books or Podcasts, anything. Podcasts, you... books, authors. Could be mentality, you know, could, could be, be mentality. Yeah, yeah, number one, obviously. <laughs> yeah. so Jordan Peterson was transformative for me. Like I can't, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fanboy. I is there a specific lecture or is it the, the book? The first time I, I ever came across best... him was on the Joe Rogan podcast. The very first yeah, one I ever did. That. And, um, like I think I told you last time, it literally took me four or five listens to really get it. And that, that kind of liberal logical part of me instantly disagreed with everything he was saying. And I had to, it, it was the first thing that challenged me enough to want to deconstruct myself. Um, and then from that, I've, I've, I've listened to everything he said. But yeah, Jordan Perkinson's got his own podcast. Listen to that. 12 Rules for Life is his book. Listen to that. It's, it's mind blowing. And one of the, the great things about Peterson is he has the ability to say really difficult, complex things, but simply... You know, he's got a really beautiful writing style. Um, I just got done reading a guy called Jonathan Haidt, who's... Um, oh, the happiness um, hypothesis or something he wrote. Happiness hypothesis. And then he just wrote um, The Coddling of the American Mind, yeah. which is essentially how we have just become unbelievably, but provably um, soft as, an, as, a, as a Western westernized world yeah I like him I read a bit that he's brilliant he's absolutely brilliant the great thing about him is what he says is uncomfortable but it's all backed empirically it's, he, he's a scientist essentially this is back, this, 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 he's not selling anything he's got no malice he's got no agenda he just says we've done this for 20 years and this is what it says so he goes into how social media negatively affects men and women um, young men and women and how that has linked heavily into the suicide trends that we see um, he gives advice for getting away from all that but he talks basically about how we've just become super soft in terms of doxing and deplatforming people um, and he gives ways for getting out of it and I think it's, it's a really 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 important book is that as an environment just like yes and then yeah, the he's based effect. in the university but he's talking about the because obviously you know the people that go to university generally speaking they're the guys that are going to go into politics they're the guys that are going to go into law they're the guys that are going to go into making the decisions that govern all of us so if they're in this environment that is just inherently you know supple and soft and is unchallenging you know and where any idea no matter how perilous it may be has to be given equal consideration then they are obviously going to come into the society in 20 years time and bring those things forward into into the public realm so it's very very dangerous um that's three we've got three that's yeah, yeah that's three two. douglas murray that we yeah, spoke yeah. off air he i'm quite new to douglas murray but he's blown he blew my mind what, what a fascinating guy and again his points are all empirically backed up He's fascinating. So he's just written a book now. I've not read it yet, but it's, it's on my list. Is um, the madness, madness of crowds, crowds. Yeah, yeah. which talks about this the crisis, the identity crisis that the West has got. Some overlap with um, Jonathan Knight's book as well. I guess lots like, of yeah, overlap. Yeah. Basically, how we've we, we've we've got ourselves into a point where you can say anything, no matter how reckless the conjecture is. You can have any opinion, any thesis, any hypothesis, and we have to take it seriously. You know, so how how do we get here with, with the trans debate and the the, you know, the gay straight debate? How do we get here? How do we get to a point where we're living in the most comfortable 
society, economically speaking, intellectually speaking, in terms of um, rights and responsibilities that has ever existed. And yet we are bombarded constantly with how homophobic we are, how racist we are, how transphobic we are. And these things are just not true. And he goes into all of that and breaks it all down. And it's fascinating. It's eye-opening. Um, mm. So that's one for the social justice warriors yeah, to watch. Yeah. He's done a few podcasts recently. He's done... He's done a Joe Rogan. He's done Double Sam, time. I think. So. Yeah, you can just Google him. He's he's, yeah, yeah. he's he's everywhere at the moment, but he's mm. he's fascinating, and he's a gay guy, which is which means that the the left in particular don't really know where to place him. That's why he's more of a threat because he's saying things that are typically I hate using right wing, left wing you know, nonsense, but typically kind of right wing claims. And in terms of his own personal identity, you, you would place him as being kind of a left wing a left wing guy. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's a place that I'd start. Yeah. Another place that I'd start, um, but Jordan Peterson for me is as close as we get right now to kind of like a, a, a modern day prophet. And the thing that I love about Peterson is that he, unlike somebody like um, Eckhart Tolle or Tony Robbins, he was dragged into this kicking and screaming. Mm. It, he didn't intend on a career doing this. Someone saw a video and thought this guy speaks the truth and it blew yeah. up. Do you know what I mean? He, 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 wasn't, yeah. he wasn't trying to sell you yeah. anything. You know, you watch a lot of his, his talks on YouTube and he gets really tearful and really choked up, you know, which I like because it just, it, it shows that the guy, he means what he's saying. Mm. And that's rare. Mm. You know, oftentimes you watch a lot of these self-help guys and you kind of get the the sense that you're being lied to a little bit or it's, it's there's, there's no it's real kind sure. of, yeah. But with Peterson, it's like this guy believes, and that, that alone's powerful. Yeah, you know, yeah. I love listening to people that believe what they're saying, even if I disagree with them. It's a powerful transformative experience to listen to a man who believes what he's saying. Cause it's rare. It's rare to listen to a man who speaks powerfully and believes it, you know? So yeah, they're the places that I start. I think they're great places to start. Yeah. I've got a few of his backed up. I need to, uh, I need to watch and it'd be good to have a, a chat about yeah. them. So all um, these questions you asked. Yeah. Before oh, we, yeah. before we go, we've got a few questions from the club. The mentality. So club. Dan, I think we talked about it earlier, but again, if you wanted to, in a few sentences, he said, um, you talked about suicide being a selfish act. How do you think people change their thought patterns? How does he mean from being suicidal to not being suicidal? I guess, I, I, I guess I'm guessing you're thinking if you're down that spiral and you're going down that route, what do you think people could actively do when they're at that lowest point to start? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's touching on um, probably, probably what we were talking about. I, I imagine about, the same story what can you repeating. Do? Yeah, the same story. Start repeating. with the smallest possible things. It's in your power to change. Mm. The smallest possible things. And one of the best things I heard, I can't remember who said it, but I've, I've, you know, I've given it off several times in the past is that you want to commit suicide. Yes. You don't want to be here. Yes. Okay, cool. Do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. Let's get through the day. Then we'll do it tomorrow. And just keep putting off that decision. And you keep putting off the decision until you get into a better place. And it's really simple advice. We kind of like, okay, fine. Let's do that tomorrow. You know? But I think, and Peterson talks about this, and I think it's a really beautiful way to conceptualize it, is that when you're in pain and when you're suffering, there is no use in those instances in using logic. Logic doesn't work on people that are in pain or suffering. You can't use logic. So what you should teach people to do then is to be aware mm. rather than be logic. Like when I'm really down or I've been in the past, to become aware of the small beauties in life. You know what I mean? And sometimes you only see those small beauties in life when you really are suffering, you know, whether it's an interaction with your child or a piece of music that touches you, you know, and even if it's momentarily, it elevates your mood somewhat and you get that kind of transformative experience in your mind. So when you're in pain and suffering, you want to teach people to be aware because logic doesn't work. Don't be sad. doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. 
But if you teach them to be aware, that's a starting point at least. And at least it's put off suicide from today until tomorrow. And that's one more day to work on you. Cool. Cool. Any more questions from there? Yeah, we've got James Underwood. How do you balance the aspect of King Kobe being a brotherhood and family whilst also being a brand and business? Um, and how do you support people within the organisation to progress? <laughs> Very difficultly. <laughs> it's, it's a nightmare doing that. That's one of the biggest challenges we've had. And I think we mentioned last time, didn't we? About how naive yeah. I was. And we tried to kind of run it as a social enterprise and money was second. And it, again, we, we used that, I guess, as kind of moral currency. You know, look how great we are on internet money. And we made, we didn't make much money and it mm. didn't work very well. So you've got to do both. And I think one of the things that helped me was realizing that, look, you can make money. You can want to make money. You can want to be successful financially. And none of that means you have to compromise who you are as a human being. And for a long time, you know, when I, I class myself as a socialist, I genuinely believe that the pursuit of, of capital and of wealth to any degree compromised you as a man. And it was a naive belief. So I don't have that anymore. So now we, we run it exactly the same as we always did. We're all friends. We all get on. We all do stuff. But now we, we, we just go, yeah, we've, we've got to make money today. We have to do so many haircuts today. We need to sell so many products today. You know? And if we do that, it's ironic because the pursuit of that wealth means that we can do more of the cool brotherhood stuff. You know? mm. And the brotherhood only exists because we've all got that central axiom, which is we're all there to make money. It might be an uncomfortable truth, but that's why we're there. The barbers are there because they make more money at that shop. I'm there because I'd rather do that than get a nine to five. So as long as we're all comfortable with that truth, everything else kind of flows naturally. So that's how we manage it. There is, There doesn't have to be a mutual exclusivity between being a good human being and caring about people and also having a desire to make money. And once I realized that, King Kobe grew and got better. So just as a second part of that as well, so there are people within King Kobe and the Brotherhood then that... Um progress on and, and, and go and do things within the brand or do you see yeah, yeah, do you see do, things that people will be like yeah, oh we do stuff like all the time so like we've, we've just taken a guy on now um, called Samuel and we've taken him on like he can't cut hair yet he's not good enough it's that simple he's on a course he's not good enough yet but we like him like he's a, he's a great kid he's a really good guy he'd be good for us so we've we've got a chair there that we need to fill because each chair makes a certain amount of money per week we've decided that we're not going to fill that chair it's going to be Sam's check. It's going to take him three or four months. You know? And the reality is those three or four months probably cost the business about £10,000 in revenue. But we're, we're prepared to do that to get the right guy on board. You know, So we're, we're always doing things like that that are going to help and support our guys. It's, we, we're never going, how many haircuts have you done today? You've not made enough money. You've not sold enough products. You know, we, we just don't do that. Cool. That's a good cool. answer. Final one from Andy Mullins. Um, who's first Mentality Club member? First Mentality Club Shout out to Andy. Um, Big shout out. He's, the only question he has is... Uh, do you ever question your own beliefs? You seem like someone who thinks he's got things figured out um, and he sometimes struggles with people like that. So do I. I struggle with people like that. No, I haven't. And I, I, I genuinely, and I mean this hand on heart, um, I question, like you said earlier on, where you're constantly thinking, I question my own beliefs constantly. And I mean constantly. I'm always trying to figure out whether, is what I believe true, is what I just said true, is what I'm putting together true. Um, and it may seem this way on the outside, but I'd, I'd have my shit together. I have my shit together a lot more than the 30-year-old Neil Smedley. That's it. I don't have my shit together. I'm learning things all of the time. Um, I certainly don't have things all figured out. I just have them more figured out than I did a year ago. And I think that's, that's all you can have for. But I don't claim at all to have all the answers, you know? But I do believe passionately in what I say. So when I present an idea to somebody... That hasn't just come out of my ass. I haven't just gone, this sounds good. Like if I'm speaking to you guys about a certain topic, it's because I've spent hundreds of hours, you know, mm. normally researching that topic and I've, and I've spent hundreds of hours thinking about it deeply and I've come to the conclusion, I think, I think what I'm saying is true and correct. 
And I'll continue to believe that until I'm presented with some sort of evidence that says it's not. And as soon as that occurs, I'll go, okay, I was wrong. I need to change the adapt now, you know? But it's paradoxical because you've got to believe what you're saying is true in order to be authentic. But you've also got to be open enough that if that's ever proven not to be the case, you can go, okay, I was that's wrong. That's the key part. Because I think some people don't do that second step. They don't. Yeah. And I did, you know, I was, I was a mom for 25 years. That governed my entire existence, you know? And I, when I was 25, 26, I believed, I don't think this is true anymore. And I walked away. But no, I, you know, what was his name? Andy. I struggle with those people too. And um, no, I don't have my shit together. I don't know all the answers, but I do think that what I know is as close to being a, a perfect knowledge as I can get at this moment in time. But I am always up for being proven wrong. Like I, I welcome that. I, I enjoy those experiences. That's why discovering Peterson was so transformative for me. Cause it's like, oh my God, everything I thought and f believed for so long was wrong, you know? And that, I loved the guy for it because mm -hmm. like, okay, you've put me on a, on a, a more correct path now. So, so no, it's, um, I don't believe I got my shit together. Cool. And the only other things, we covered everything, I think, in my notes. And the only note I made down during the pod, which I didn't go back to, was uh, you mentioned the traits of successful people. I think we touched on this in the last one we did as well, but I did, there's a book by Oliver Bertman called The Antidote. And he, there's a bit in it he does on um, the survivorship bias, which is where you, if a boat crashes and you only interview the survivors, you ignore all the traits of the people who died in it because no one interviews them. And he said in successful millionaires, they all said, oh, you've got to not take no for an answer, be stubborn. And they had all these traits they picked out as common, but then they went to people who were bankrupt and they all had the exact same. Yeah. They didn't take no for the answer. So it's a balancing act in there. I'm not saying that's what you were saying yeah. earlier. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to flag that bit up as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes I well, find- the, the traits exist on both sides. Did you, you say, you know, you were saying, um, I think you made the point that if you look at the successful people, yeah. look at the traits, they'll all have loads in common. Ones, yeah. But that doesn't mean that people who aren't successful, they, they might be stubborn and have the same sort of traits, but it hasn't oh, of gone- of course. It's not an exact science. Yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah. it's an exact enough science to take notice of it. Yeah, but yeah. it's not an exact same. I mean, you can get success depends on all sorts of different things. Um, but you can get people that have got all the traits of a successful person, but just never quite hit upon the success. Maybe they're aiming at the wrong star. Do you know what I mean? It could be, um, yeah, it could be anything. But it's it happens enough for it to be taken seriously. You know, if you look at successful people and say, okay, eighty percent of successful people have these same five traits, then you should take that seriously. Yeah, but then people, it makes no sense to argue that twenty percent of those people don't have those traits. You know, because all of our success, you know, to some degree, is is a game of averages. You know, so you, you play the averages. If eighty percent of successful people, especially if it's in my field of chosen, you know, endeavour where I want to be successful, if eighty percent of them are doing A, B, and C, then do A, B, and C. That's just smart. Yeah, I guess it, as long as the other twenty percent aren't doing, you know, if eighty percent are doing it when the other twenty percent don't have those traits, you know what I mean? If it, that's what makes them stand out, yes. then yeah, 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 yeah. In yeah. contrast, I guess, but yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, cool. There's another good one. That was a good pod. Enjoyed it. It's nice. Um, I find a lot of pods sometimes you listen to and they become like, not like lovings, but you know, like no one's scared to challenge, which yeah, is why yeah. I think it's kind of no, good No, they're bored. To, it's better when you disagree. Yeah, to constantly challenge like, each other. Um, and I think we actually, sometimes you find out you agree on a lot of things, but you just have to figure out where you both come from on them. Mm. But yeah, yeah it's good. good. Enjoy pod. them. Yeah, really good. Enjoy Thank it. you Thanks for having on again, definitely. Cool. And uh, keep us in touch with um, everything you're doing. And we'll yeah. promote it and stuff as well. So. Awesome. Thank you. Sound, brother. Appreciate it. Cheers, guys. Before you get off, guys, check out the stuff that we've got going on at mentalityapparel.com. And if you ever want to support us, go over to patreon.com forward slash mentality. That's P A T R E O N 
patreon.com forward slash mentality you can support us in any capacity there but also you can join the mentality club and really get involved and get amongst it and go towards making change making big change cheers guys see you on the next one